It's funny because I I taught him how to do it, and then the pup the pupil surpassed, you know. <laughs> Welcome back to Growing Up Punk, the podcast about punk rock and all of its friends. My name is David. My friend typically is Aaron, uh, but he's sitting this one out. This one is a conversation that I got to have with Greg Thomas. He's a producer and engineer from Silver Bullet Studios, and this one's kind of funny. We I, I share the story as to how this episode came to be in the actual interview itself, uh, so I, I won't. I'll spare you that. But it's kind of funny how this one all came together. But it was an opportunity to ask some questions and get some answers for questions that I've had for quite some time. I've titled this episode From Record to Record because the whole idea is we talk about the process, uh, how, how a record goes from just an idea or a concept to the final product that you can hold in your hands, that you can put on your turntable, put in your CD player, uh, play on your phone, whatever the case may be, and, and the difference between those mediums. So over the course of this, he kind of shares some stories behind albums that he's had the opportunities uh, to work on from Shy Halud, uh, The World is a Beautiful Place and I Am No Longer Afraid to Die, Hostage Calm, Misery Signals, and more. It's really informative. It's really long. Uh, we talked for well over two hours just going back and forth. It was a lot of fun. So there isn't actually going to be, if you're used to listening to this show and you're used to hearing music, there isn't actually really going to be any music in this episode. Uh, so if you do want to kind of listen to some of these stories or, or, or the albums that you know, we kind of talk about, uh, you can look them up. You could see, you know, he talks about a number of, of what he has worked on. Um, just a few artists that I mentioned there, but uh, there's there's a ton of stuff out there that he's got going on and a ton of stuff that I'm excited for that he's working on for the future. But let's not waste any more time. Let's get into this episode, uh, my interview, my chat with Greg Thomas of Silver Bullet Studios. Uh, but before we get into it, of course, go follow us on social media at Growing Punk Pod. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter. You can also uh, find my and Aaron's personal Instagrams and Twitters link there. Um, wherever you're listening, share the podcast, tell your friends about it. If you've got friends who've got questions about how all of this magic happens, how you know a band can go from practicing in their basement to playing in your earbuds or on your home stereo, whatever the case may be. It's very informative. It's a great episode. So let's not waste any more time. It's me chatting with Greg Thomas of Silver Bullet Studios, how we go from hitting record to playing a record. Got a comment on that Get of Kids at the Drive-In flyer oh, behind you. That's what side is it? This side. That's, that one? that's yeah. awesome. Saves yeah, that's, yeah, that's cool. I got that one... Uh, that came with, uh, it's funny because a few people have pointed it out. There's another one. Maybe it's harder to see down here, though. Oh, the Jimmy World at the Drive-In one? Yeah. So those came from, uh, oh, the anthology of emo books from Washed Up Emo. I don't know. Nice. You, yeah. So when I, yeah, when yeah. I, yeah. When I ordered them, they came with uh, the, the show posters, which is great because they're actually double sided. So it's the same, like, so that the the Jimmy Eat World poster is on the back side of that one, but I don't know if it's because I ordered two, they sent two, they made it sound like I was only getting one, and I was like, well, that'll suck because then I got to choose which one. Yeah, but, totally, and they're both great. So yeah, like, what yeah, the yeah? Yeah, I do. I, I've mentioned this a few times with a couple of people. I, I'm intending on uh, like redoing this back wall. I've got a bunch of new stuff I want to put on it, but I just haven't haven't gotten around to it yet. One of these days. Ah, you I got love. some classic stuff up there. It's cool. Yeah. I also plan, though, on – I'm just in a storage room, so <laughs> – Gotcha, <laughs> this is, yeah. This is where I'm sitting. So there's actually, like, a, a shelf beside me that one of these days I plan – or, like, a um, a whole 
storage thing that I plan on getting rid of. So I'm like, I won't do anything until that's moved and I have more wall to work with. But yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's where 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 are you? You're up in Canada, right? Yeah, I'm in Edmonton. So uh, okay. Central Alberta, I guess. It's cold here right now. That's all that counts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've spent a lot of time in Edmonton because the oh, yeah? uh, one of the Miser Single Singers, oh, yep. the first one, Jesse's up there. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, e- even just recently, I was up because they did a record um, like last year and we yeah. recorded vocals up there. I went up to Edmonton oh. and brought like a mobile rig and was there for weeks. <laughs> That's awesome. So. Like, so like in 2020 or before everything? Right before everything. Yeah. So 2019. Nice end of 2019 yeah Yeah, that's that's fun um yeah like it's funny because i've I've never actually seen misery signals live uh but i did see like compromise back in the day and then so i always knew about misery signals because obviously uh the story that's that goes with that but um so that puts you at around my age i would imagine maybe maybe depends how old are you i'm 39 okay so so yeah 37 so pretty close pretty close yeah um yeah, no, that's uh, that's fun that you're up here. Uh, that's kind of actually random and funny. Not many people. They're always like, "Oh yeah, sure, Edmonton." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I mean, I fully know. Like, like there was the Misery Singles like Oilers rip shirt that yeah. we had for a while and stuff. Like, th- there's a lot of love for Edmonton randomly awesome. in that yeah, camp. Yeah. So <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so let's. Uh, I think before we get into like the meat of all this, why don't we kind of go back a little bit? I know one question we like to ask. Anytime we get a guest on is, do you remember like when you were first introduced into the world of punk and hardcore and like what band or album it was? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I do that. That's one to bring up. I have to think about it for a second cause it's been yeah. so long, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mid nineties, it would be, you know, for me, it was like vision of disorder was mm. probably that and that honestly minor threat, minor yeah. threat was probably the first. That's probably everybody's introduction, um, <laughs> but it's, it's funny cause like. I guess it depends, but in a similar, I mean, not quite minor threat, but a lot of people say Fugazi, but I guess that also depends on the world I'm interviewing. Like, um, you know, when chatting with like Bob Nana of Braid and, uh, like people kind of coming from that side of the world, I know a lot of them always reference Fugazi kind of being that first one that more so maybe just made them want to start a band, uh, which is understandable because that, that band was phenomenal, but, um, Oh yeah. Yeah. So how, how old would you say you were when you kind of first started discovering the music well i got in through metal metal was the first Mm. thing and i heard slayer cover minor threat that's what it was and i was like oh wait i was like this is a band that's fast all the time that's all i want i just (laughs) wanted fast beats so um i would say i was probably i would guess about 13 12 or 13 something like that is when i first heard it yeah yeah. i got a minor threat cassette tape that was the that was when it all fell you know yeah yeah. <laughs> um, so then, like, were you were you kind of immediately, were you always a musician or wanting to be into music and into bands and working with music? Uh, well, my dad's a musician. He's like a jazz pianist, and yeah. he did some recording and stuff when I was younger. And because of that, I actually didn't like music. For some <laughs> reason, I was like, music is stupid, you know. <laughs> Just, I, I don't know why. It's how you rebel against your parents sometimes, you know. Sure. And uh, then when I, like, found, like, heavy metal and punk then i was like oh i have my own music in a way so um so yeah i mean pretty early on like this will be my 18th year doing the studio um full time and but even before then i was recording in like the late 90s when i when i was like 
14, I was already recording to tape and making punk demos, yeah. you know, oh, in man. Connecticut. So <laughs> you just, I can't uh, even remember a time of not being into it, you know? Yeah, you just reminded me of a story. So, like, I mean, many of us, we had, you know, like the high school punk band. And for, and for me, that was about as, as kind of long as it lasted, maybe a little bit out of high school, too. But I can yeah. remember before actually going in and recording with someone, um, we uh, – <laughs> I don't know – I don't know how this guy learned it, but we had a friend of the band. He had heard or learned that speakers could also be used as microphones if you hooked yeah. them up through the input, right? So yeah. he constructed, I don't know how many speakers he had laying around his house, but basically he ended up like chaining them all together. This so is were, so sick. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like set up around the room, you know, like our practice space or whatever. And, uh, I can remember just just playing and recording two cassette using speakers as microphones, and still like in the end being like, you can understand it like that. That blows. That's amazing. My mind. Yeah, I feel like we should definitely talk about that once this is. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. We actually still use a uh, microphone that is a converted speaker right. kind of on yeah. drums to this day. Like, oh, you know, that's awesome. So. That's so funny. Yeah, I like. I haven't. When he said that to me, I was like, nah, that's not true. And then he's like, check this out. And then sure enough, it works. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's I, basically like like when you go to an apartment complex and you like buzz in. Yeah. When you're buzzing and talking, it's a microphone and then it flips the wire right. when yeah. you hear back. So I guess that makes sense. That's that's incredible. I'm just going to, you know, next time I decide I want to record something, I'm just going to go to someone's apartment and buzz in. and. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. What is going on? <laughs> yeah, like that's it. awesome. Um so when when did you get into wanting to work like and and record music? I guess you said you you'd kind of always sort of been dabbling in it a little bit. Yeah, I was I was doing it um really early on cuz my dad had some equipment, so I would kind of mess around like my first bands were all these kind of like grindy crust punk bands, you know, and uh nobody could really record. So I was like, "Oh, I can I have a tape deck, you know, I can record yeah. a demo tape." And then yeah just sit there and duplicate it to hand out to my friends, you know, yeah, real, yeah. real time, uh, duplication. And then, um, yeah, at that point I was still planning on doing other things. Like I was going to school, uh, you know, I finished high school and then I was going to college to be a teacher, to be a, uh, I was dual majoring in mathematics and English mm. to be like a high school teacher. And, um, I was playing in this band with honor at the time and with honor started, uh, just touring. And so I had to make the decision like, okay, do I go on tour and kind of lose my job and leave? I left in the middle of a semester. Right. And I, and I was like, yeah, I think I want a tour. That's what I want to try to do. And so I went on tour in like 2002, and that was basically, it took me like a year or so to get the studio together, and then that's been my job ever since. That's awesome. So, so it, it, it kind of fell in. And also, also part of it was like my friends were making records at the time that didn't sound good. Um, so I had this like thing where I was like, dang, like these guys are so good. I wish that I could hear what they were playing better. And so then, you know, I started the studio to, to, to correct that. And then I made bad sounding records for years while I was learning. (laughs) So so my friends went from making bad sounding records with somebody else to making bad sounding records with me, but uh, eventually I started to figure it out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So was there any like schooling involved in that or just all trial and error? It was all, it was pretty much all trial and error. Um, you know, just kind of putting together all the money that I had and taking out a loan to get the equipment and sitting the first time I ever sat down at a computer to record, I I had a band here. 
So yeah. I never even opened yeah. up the program. So I was just yeah. like, okay, guys, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> See what yeah. happens. I, uh, there was, cause there was a short period of time, you know, in high school meeting with my guidance counselor, you know, she was like, so what do you, what do you want to do when you're done high school? And forever I had wanted to actually, <laughs> since I was a kid, I was like, oh, I want to, I want to, you know, be a hockey broadcaster, like play by play sort of stuff. And, and as I got into high school and got into punk and stuff like that, I kind of like left that world behind a little bit. Right. So it's yeah. like. So I was like, well, I really want to play music, but I know that's probably not realistic. You know, I, I can't bank on that was sort of my, my thought. And I was like, and she brought up the idea. She's like, well, what about like working in a studio and making music? I was like, you know, I never really thought about that. So I, uh, my first year out of high school, I went to, I did like a year of schooling for like production stuff. And Oh, that's uh, awesome. Yeah. So it was, <laughs> I was thinking about this earlier is like, it was at a place in Calgary because uh, I grew yep. up actually just outside Calgary, not not originally from Edmonton, but um, and it was called the Academy of Production and Recording Arts. And I was thinking about it today. I was like, man, that's just a really fancy way of saying an expensive nap on a couch and uh, a, uh, an Arby's addiction <laughs> because yes. I spent so much time just like sleeping in the studio. Uh, well, because like we had a class of it was like probably maybe 10, 10 to 15 people. And so there wasn't always enough work for all of you, right? So you kind of go in like these shifts that were a couple of hours. So if you were at like the bottom of the barrel uh, on, you know, as you kind of rotated through all, all the positions or whatever, it's like, ah, it's nap yeah. time. And they had really comfortable couches. So <laughs> that's, that's really but, funny. But, and so you're, you're just talking about, you know, like the first time recording someone or like learning, opening the program, you had a band in the room. And I was like, yeah, I did like trying to dabble in it for a little bit had a band recording in my parents basement and it was fun you know yeah. and i was like that was the only like real project i did and i was like all right cool well i think i need to get a job now <laughs> yeah i mean that's really like it's funny because our studio uh it was at a couple locations when we started it but it eventually came to my parents basement and then i mm -hmm. took over the, the house pretty much and yeah. then like so like the studio is the house that i lived in it just expand oh. you know just expanded so much and i was able to like basically buy you know get the house and then set my parents up and i still kind of kick them money to make sure that they're okay and it's like a it's kind of a funny thing but yeah. you never know where the parents basement leads you know <laughs> right right like i put on the odd show in my parents basement they weren't aware of that but you know there's like yeah your parents basement can be so so useful <laughs> yeah um, totally totally yeah. that's really funny yeah. That's cool that you you have at least some background and and you obviously played music then too. Yeah, yeah. Like I played guitar in a band for. Well, I played guitar in numerous bands for a while, but it was never anything like that. You know, outside of playing a couple shows a year, sort of thing. Like I think I re recorded three EPs, maybe. Um, do you actually do you know the band? They're from up here, but I know they're they've got a name kind of around. But do you know the band Belvedere? Yeah, 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 I do. So, so Casey, I do Lewis. from from being up there pretty much. Oh actually. yeah, yeah. So like Casey plays drums in Belvedere, and uh, he, I'm pretty sure he still has a studio, uh, but he had a studio in Calgary, and that was kind of yep. like that. You uh, you know, I don't know whose basement it was in, but it was in a basement. And I just remember going and spending spending a bunch of my hard earned money there to, you know, make memories. <laughs> is basically yeah, what yeah. it boiled that, down that's to. Pr so. That's pretty much what it is. Yeah, it's pretty much what most of it is yeah. for sure. Just hanging out. So. Um, so we're going to talk about maybe maybe I'll give we're going to talk about the whole process of putting together a record from start to finish and releasing it. Uh, and maybe I, I thought maybe I'd just give, you know, kind of people listening a bit of a background as to how this conversation came to be. Yeah, um, yeah. Because it is kind of funny. So one day 
I was just sitting there and I must have been I must have been sitting there listening to records or something like that. You know, I can't remember the, the precise moment or I had the thought originally at that moment and then decided later. I was like, I'm going to I'm going to send out a couple of tweets. And basically it was like I was just saying, hey, you don't those of you who listen to vinyl, if I could sum it up, you don't listen to vinyl because it sounds better. You listen to vinyl because when I thought about it, I was like, you enjoy the experience. I was like, kind of sums it up. Yeah. You know, you got bigger artwork. There's the whole, you know, people bringing up points of, you know, I can't, you can't just pick a track as easy as, you know, opening up your phone and going, I want to listen to track seven. Right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's a, there's a whole experience to it. And then, you know, I was talking about, uh, how a lot of today's music is recorded digitally anyway. So you're taking a digital recording and transferring it to an analog medium. And then anyways, as, as the story went on, you commented and you're like, <laughs> I disagree with this 100%. I think it was was basically how you started or fully disagree with this. Something, something like, yeah, that. yeah. Yeah. And I was like, perfect. This is kind of what I'm looking for. Not like a debate or anything, but me going, okay. I was convinced, you know, in, uh, so, so I got my first record player turntable back, shoot, probably 2003. My grandparents moved out of their house. My grandfather had this big, like it was one of those like furniture pieces, right? Like, you know, it had, it was yep. like oak made out of oak and it was probably four feet long and stood a couple feet high. You open the top, you know, like the classic old look. Yeah. And, uh, and he, and he gave me a couple records with it, like a couple jazz records. And I sort of started buying some vinyl then and then stopped for a while. And then in, I'd say the last seven or eight years kind of got more into it. Like I, I don't consider myself like a collector in the sense where I'm like, I'm buying different variants of the same record or, you know, like, yeah, I'm, like, I'm the, I'm the same with you yeah, there on that. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, I buy, I buy it to again for the experience of listening to it. Right. Like I just want to listen to it. I'm not, I like a couple of weeks ago I went and I sold a bunch because I was like, ah, they're just taking up space. I haven't really listened to them. You know, I could sell 10 of these and go buy a couple records. Right. Like, you know, yeah, so totally. It's kind of how I work. And uh, and I, I think I was just like sitting there listening, going like, man, there's just some pressings. And I mean, I guess a phrase would be not all pressings are created equal, which you touched on uh, yeah. in, in your uh, novel that you posted. I'm so sorry to write such a long <laughs> thing. Well, I, I've been a fan of the podcast for a yeah. little while. Like, like yeah. I've listened to you guys a number of times. You know, I really liked the episode that you just had with Chad on. And then you actually had the end singer, Brendan, on, yeah. you know, a little while ago yeah so I, i've been following you guys for a little bit and i saw that and i <laughs> the only reason i i think i even commented is because there's a lot of misconceptions about it and i and i i understand the misconceptions about it because we're talking the most minute differences mm -hmm. but it's almost like trying to give a voice to people that are like i feel like some kind of connection to this and i don't understand why and yep. you know trying to explain some of that yeah and so i thought it would be fun to actually you know because you you had got into a few details about just some of the different steps in the process. And I was like, well, this might be yeah. kind of interesting because, you know, there are some things I can sit there, you know, and put something on and go, Oh, I don't like the way this record sounds. And I might be able to say, Oh, it's the, the guitar tone that I don't like, or, Oh, you know, it's the vocal sitting in it. You know, there might be little bits and pieces that myself, yep. my, you know, unprofessional ear can sit there and go, yeah, this is what I don't like about it, or this is what I do like about it. But I couldn't necessarily tell you why that is. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, okay, well, what made that guitar tone sound like that? Was it purely that's what, you know, that guitar player walked into the studio and that's his setting he uses and he just has a shitty ear as it is? Or is it, you know, just a, a number of different things that have come together? 
or I shouldn't say a shitty ear. They've just got a different ear, <laughs> you know, than what I'm, yeah. I'm looking for. Um, so I, th- I thought it would be fun to kind of go through this process and uh, you seemed ready and willing. And I thought that was, that was awesome. So um, yeah, I've, like I said, I appreciate you having me on and stuff. I, I always like talking this kind of thing. And I yeah. think there's like, th- like I said, a lot of this stuff is very subtle you know, and the process, it's a mystery. The process is a mystery for a lot of people. And what's yeah. funny is it's a mystery for a lot of bands too. So that's that's one of the things that I think it's like really fun to come on here and talk to you about this because I'll have bands come in that don't know really what mastering is. And it's kind of, kind of hard to explain. I'm going to do my yeah. best to try to do it. But where some people are like, do I need to master this or do I need to whatever? What's the difference between that and mixing all this stuff? So I get questions from musicians that it's their their passion to make music. And some of the stuff, they're just like, okay, what, what is this step, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's kind of fun to talk about that and be like, okay, well, it, it's, it's this, you know, try to explain it as best I can. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I'm looking forward to it because I won't lie. There's, there's been times, like, you bring up mastering where I'm like, okay, I don't, I don't know if I could really explain that other than making it sound better. <laughs> like, there's... Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Like, there's a, there's a tool online that you can literally like I've seen people use it obviously I wouldn't recommend this but where you can upload you know your your mp3 or your wave file or whatever yeah and it mixed, like automatically and masters, it masters it. it yeah and I'm like okay all it's doing is adding you know a filter basically you know that that comes with I mean the the filter like I know um I've used Adobe Audition a little bit right and so I know there's like different effects in there and like under like it's a uh, multi-band compressor for instance is like the, yep. the effect that's on there and you like drop it down and it's got all these different presets and i'm like oh that one says pop master that's i think what they did you know on this website yeah yeah just added yeah that. so but we'll we'll kind of get into the the finer details why don't we start you sent me a, a list but why don't we start at the uh the very beginning of the process for you yeah sure um are you are rec- are you already recording do you want to yeah. Just yeah, yeah. kind of jump into this. Okay, I wasn't sure if you wanted to like uh, <laughs> go into it, but yeah. So I basically, I'm just gonna look at my notes a little here. <laughs> I, I basically um, tried to break the recording process down to six different steps. Basically, the the process from the first thinking of the music to when you actually release it, or you're holding a record in your hand, because mm-hmm. it's not just recording it, but also getting it printed, and then you're holding the album or something like that. And yeah. I, I broke it down into six different uh, stages. The first stage was the writing, demoing, pre-production stage. Uh, the second stage was tracking the record. Third stage was the post-production and editing. Fourth stage was mixing. The fifth stage was mastering. And the sixth stage was production and distribution, mm-hmm. which all those kind of, you know, obviously every step ties into itself. So the um, first stage of making a record is writing the record, obviously. And that right. sounds really cut and dry, but that is very different between every project. Um, you know, for some bands, that is getting into the room together and just playing in like a rehearsal space and just yeah. jamming out songs. For a lot of bands today, uh, that'll be like a guitarist or somebody just writing on their laptop, you mm-hmm. know and just demoing out some guitar things or even further people will put like MIDI. They'll use like MIDI to like have like a electronic guitar or whatever, you know? (laughs) Um, so there's like a lot of different, um, 
ways to do that. And, you know, I'm currently working on, I'm going to mention a few records as we're going through this. Uh, I'm mm. currently working on a record for a band called With Honor that I, I used to play in, that I don't play in anymore, but um, I only played with them briefly. But their, they, their last album was like 2005, and they broke up, and then they're coming back. They just signed to Pure Noise, and yeah. we're getting ready to do like a comeback record for them. And those guys, um, because they're a little older, they're like they're around my age. They're in you know 40, 41, 42. Yeah. Um, they tried to write stuff, and we're at the point we're at the point right now of this writing and pre production. So they're just trying to get the songs together, and then they're going to come into the studio in January. And for those guys, they tried to write stuff using their computers the way a lot of people do, and it wasn't feeling right. They were sharing demos back and forth, and everybody was like, "Something's missing," and they had to like actually go into the rehearsal space, start playing the songs. Then they started to change and evolve and just come up with new stuff. And then it clicked and it sounded like classic with honor. So I think one of the important things there is that um, there's no right or wrong way to create songs, but there's certain things that work better for different projects. So like, you know, with those guys, they had to jam, you know, in the room to get it. But the band that I play in end, we tried to do that on our last record that came out last year, and we got together, me and the other guitarist, Will, got together in the room with our drummer, Billy, who's like, Billy's an incredible musician. You know, he comes from the Dillinger Escape Plan. He's like this right. total, you know, played in like glass jaw and all, you know, he's a phenomenal drummer. But when me and Will tried to jam with him, he was on such a different level that we'd be playing like this fast riff and be like oh you just do like the slayer beat there and he's like okay what are the accents for this and you know he <laughs> yeah. he was like talking to us like a, a, as a proper musician we're like i don't know it's just fast and pissed and, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah you know so um so we jammed with him a little and then we're like okay well how about me and will go into the other room with the computer and we just <laughs> we kind of demo out in midi drums and then show you and then have you put your flair on it and stuff right. like that and so that worked better for that so with with end um, you know, it's a completely different process than with Honor. We tried to, the other way around, we tried to jam in the room and then we're like, okay, we can't, we can't communicate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and then, you know, different than that even still is like with Misery Signals, my time in Misery Signals, me and the other guitarists, we'd each kind of write our own songs um, independently of each other and then send them to each other to kind of like give notes and things mm-hmm. like that. And, so yeah, again, every process is a little different. And then that generally leads, that's tied with, like I was saying, pre-production slash demoing. Yeah. And I think that's a really important part of making a record. Um, for every, for almost every classic record that you hear within the last 25 years, there's some kind of rough demo version right. of it that yeah. existed before the album. Yeah. And what that basically is, is just, yeah, people recording stuff at home or at a friend's small studio or something like that. Um, occasionally you will go to a nice studio for that. Um, I met the other guitarist, Will, from and during the Misery Singles album because we went to him for pre-production. Hmm. We went to his studio because we were, uh, everybody in Misery Singles lived in different states or countries. Yeah, Nobody yeah. lived near each other. So we had to all fly into one central location. So we're like, let's go to this cool little studio, hole up for a couple weeks, do a bunch of demos, see what we need to change. Um, right. So yeah, that like that pre-production demo stage is really important. That's when you're getting the first ideas and that can start, you know, months before you record. So for this with honor record that we're doing right now, we're just at pre-production. We're sharing the demos. We're cutting songs that we don't think are going to work. Like 
I don't see this one fitting. And they're kind of sending everything back and forth. We're all weighing in. And this, it's a really important part because you basically save yourself a lot of time in the studio and time is money. And like the more time you have in the studio, the more you can get some extra takes to play Mm -hmm. a part a little better or try to layer something a little different. So most records will start with that kind of writing process. How often does a band come to you, uh, to work on a record and they, they actually don't even have a single riff written out yet. Like, does that happen often or typically this kind of stuff going on, you know, before your name is called? Um, that does happen sometimes or generally, yeah, there are times where people try to write in the studio. You definitely have to have a bigger budget for that. So if you're on a little bit of a bigger label and they can afford to give you that time, you can go in and do your pre-production at a good studio right. and um, do that. But it is a little rare. What tends to happen more often is that bands will come in with material and they will be like, so what do you think? And sometimes it's like, oh, all that's great. Like, I love it. Let's go. Or if we have time um, and they really want like to go through it all, sometimes we'll go through and I'll be like, okay, I don't know about these songs um, or you know, half of this song is really cool, but I don't know about this end and we'll try to work on it together. So, mm-hmm. um, usually bands will come in with some kind of, you know, stuff together, but it might really change in the studio. You might be writing in the studio, not because of lack of preparation, yeah, but you know, um, just having somebody come in and if they're looking for an honest opinion, which most people that are going to a producer that are not trying to record it themselves, they want the honest opinion. They don't just want the like, you know, Hey, that's cool, man. Good. Like, you know, when you when you play a show and somebody comes up to you and they're like, "Good set." And you're like, "Thank you." And like that is cool and appreciated, but it is hard to get better at your right. craft if yeah. somebody's yeah. just like, "That's cool." Um, you know, it, it's it's almost more helpful to people to be like, "That's cool. I really liked this one part in this song or your guitar tone is awesome or like have some kind of specific dialogue with yeah. what is really working in the set." And that happens as a producer often. Um, where bands will come in and then then we're writing together and in those situations um for me being a guitarist myself i'll sit with a guitar with them in a room and or at the computer and we all kind of just bounce ideas back and forth and that it doesn't happen all the time but i would say a good maybe half the records or less than half the records there'll be some kind of adjustments like that Hmm. um so there, there is writing in the studio. I was, well. I always wanted to ask, like, just for, and maybe it's because this seems to be more of, you know, one person doing the two jobs. But so when you talk about someone being a producer versus someone being an engineer, is it just that those two jobs are typically done by one person these days? Or, you know, because I, I feel like when I grew up or not necessarily when I grew up, well, I guess I was growing up, but, you know, as a teenager or whatever, that it was like, Okay, well, the engineer is the guy who's who's moving the faders and pushing the buttons, and the producer is the guy in the background, you know, the big wig who's like, "No, you got to change it," you know. Like, is that is that kind of what? Not necessarily the big wig, but is that kind of what it boils down to? Yeah. So you're you're right on. That is traditionally that's what records were for a long, long period of time, where the producer was the person who would kind of go through the ideas that would have more of the creative ideas and try to be like an overarching um, person to just, you know, we should go for this style. We should go for this style of recording, this style of writing. Um, and the engineer is the person that set up the microphones mm-hmm. that made sure that the tones going in were good. 
And the reason we don't see that much anymore at all is because of the, you know, the recording industry collapsing, pretty much the record right. industry, you know, l- the labels collapsing where you don't have, you know, million dollar budgets, you know, or things yeah. like that. Even like, like, I, I remember uh, reading about like uh, Nirvana recording the Bleach album, their first record. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, it was like a low budget recording. Like they went in with like, Ten thousand or something dollars, right. and I was like, "Dang! Like ten thousand dollars is still a good budget today to make a record." So I don't right. know in nineteen eighty nine if that you know. So yeah. the the whole scale shifted to uh, be completely different. So the producers had to kind of become the engineers, and right. I think it's a lot easier with having digital technology brought into the recording realm because you know um, instead of like having to run and reconnect all these things or do like like i can just sit at my computer somebody can play a guitar take i can just edit it right there in front of them and that's right. good but yeah. back in the day they'd have to take the tape somewhere cut up the tape if you wanted to edit it yeah. you know glue it together pretty much and like that's how you would get your thing so you needed people dedicated to those tasks i mean even back in the day you'd have somebody that just was servicing the tape machine right throughout you know if you see the multi-track tape machine those are so finicky and they always need calibrating and so you have people just working on the keeping the thing going, you know, yeah, yeah. let alone trying to make the record. Now it's like kind of folded into one. And then there is a point now like that I'm a little further in my career. You know, I'm not saying I, I just want to say everything I'm saying is not like I'm like the end all be all. You know, right. every, you know I just have my own experience to talk about. Right. Yeah, so yeah. Um, as my career's progressed a little, I now have people that do help come in and do actually do assistant engineering on records okay. and they will kind of help set up the mics. My, my actually, my studio co-owner, Chris, I always have him do drum setups for me because he's just an ace at it. He's a little better than I am at it. And so right. I schedule the time for him to set up. So he, he's not really producing the record, but he would be considered an engineer to the record yeah. by setting up those mics for me and just being like really dialed in on how to do that. So it kind of comes all into one role, and then as you do a little better, you can start to have some assistance from other people, mm. and you start to get some of those traditional engineer roles back. But if you've always got Chris setting up drum mics for you because he's better, you're you're just never going to get better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I can still, I mean, it's funny because I, I taught him how to do it, and then yeah. the, pu- the pupil surpassed, you know? <laughs> and yeah, then, that's awesome. You know, so now it's like, and he also, I, I think one of the important things about you know, recording and, and a lot of time with collaborative stuff is to figure out what you really like to do and what you're particularly dialed into or what you, you know, you're quote unquote good at, or you think you're good at at least. And for Chris, he's really good at the microphones and like the technical side of it, like all the right. gear, he's looking up gear all the time, you know, and I'll see him, I'll come in the studio and see him on his phone, looking at YouTube videos of, mic reviews at like 3 a.m you know he's just like watching he's fascinated you know (laughs) and for for me um i focus more uh, like i've kind of taken my mind and focus more on like the songwriting aspects not say he's a great songwriter himself but i focus more on the macro songwriting aspects and things like that and try to you know um look at the macro level kind of and he looks really micro and he's an ace at it and then we actually collaborate on almost every record that we do together Mm because of that so he'll get a record to a certain point then have me listen to it and be like oh this is cool but you need to turn up the guitars you know general (laughs) basic things like that and then he'll look at a record that i'm doing and he'll be like 
your compression ratio is bad on this snare drum. Like, okay. (laughs) So there is a little compartmentalizing like that. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. So does that kind of cover, I guess, like with the writing, demoing, and the pre-production, most bands, like you said, are coming to you and they've kind of got at least a semblance of what the album's going to look like. Yeah, so, and it can change drastically. Yeah. I've had records come in where like, hey, we have 10 songs, and then at the end of the process, two or three of those songs remain. Right. So things can go pretty drastic. How often, um, does, it, how often does it go from coming with 10 songs and dropping to seven or coming with 10 songs and walking away with 12? Does that, does that ever happen where a band's just like feeling it with you and ideas are coming yeah, out? Yeah. Yeah, so, sometimes it does happen that way. And one thing that's common, too, is if a recording session's going really well or something like that, um, sometimes bands will decide to, uh, like I just had a band in yesterday that you know expanded out a record we were doing because they're like, you know what, we should just re-record our demo because it sounded bad, and then the new stuff sounds great. Right. And you know, so they're like, they're like their time at the studio because I, I didn't work on them with the demo, but they came here and they're like, oh, this is the sound we were going for. Yeah. Let's re-record older songs again. So that kind of happens. Sometimes that's a case where you, you'll you see some older songs re-recorded on a record. Yeah, It's because the band already knows the song. They're already playing it live. The mics are all set up, and it's kind of like, ah, let's try this one too. Right. So sometimes you leave with more stuff. Um, but often, yeah, oftentimes you know, records do get cut down. I think it's very common for bands to... You know, it, it could be either way. They come in with not enough material, and they're like, "This is a full-length album," and it's like, "Okay, this is 25 minutes. We should probably add a song right. or something like that." Or a band will come in. We'll have bands come in, and it's like, "Here's 60 minutes of music," and they're like, "Okay, nobody can handle this right now. Let's give them 35 <laughs> minutes of the best <laughs> yeah. that we can," you know, um, and save those other songs for later. So it does shift in a lot of different directions. And I, and I do think how involved the process is definitely comes down to budget, which I think is an important part of the um, kind of the pre-production writing stage of a record that I should mention too, is once you get the songs together, you need to come up with a game plan of how you're going to do it. And that greatly affects what the process is. So mm. if you're self-funding the record, then you might come in and try to do 10 songs in a week or right. a weekend even, you know? And I still do records like that sometimes. I'll have yeah. like, I'll have like a, you know, like a punk band will come in and just be like, we want to do, I had one like last year that came in, they did 18 songs in like four days, you know? <laughs> and and, and I, could, I could spend four days on one song depending yeah. on what it is, but that's what they wanted. And we're like, okay, we're gonna go raw, no click track, no editing. Let's just set up the mics, like have you guys play. They're good musicians and it sounded cool and we got across what they wanted. Yeah. Um, I think the most important thing to mention when talking about recording or art in general is that the process, there's no rules to it. Mm. So every record can be very different. The process of every record can be different. It doesn't mean that one is right and the other is wrong. You know, sometimes yeah. just getting in and just whipping through a bunch of songs is the way to go. Maybe that is the feel. And other things, if you're working with like a technical metal band, then you're going to want to do some of those edits and stuff like that. Or, or you might want to do some of those edits because people are used to hearing things that way. Right. You know, so everything does change, but securing that funding is an important part of it. And that does affect the process greatly. So that is kind of, you know, maybe you take your demos and you send them to labels and some label small or big is like, okay, we want to foot the bill for this and put this out. Or you got to see like save up, you know, I've done this, my first recordings, I had to save up for months and months and months and then go into the studio, you know? Um, so, yeah, that is something to mention. And, and, you know, there's a lot of things like 
with the Misery Singles album that I played guitar on, which is Absent Light, we did crowdfunding for that. We actually right. were kind of on a label, and then our label got bought out by a major label. We were on Ferret, and then Ferret got bought out by Warner Brothers. Okay. And then they didn't care. You know, they didn't care. I don't. I don't honestly understand. I can tell you a lot about recording, but one thing I can't tell you about is why major labels buy out smaller labels and just dissolve them. Do do <laughs> yeah, dissolve them. I I yeah. don't. I think feel like that's such a waste of potential, you know. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so we got kind of stuck in that, and then we decided to crowdfund a record, and um, that was a whole experience in itself, you know. And, and, and with that, you know, even going into it, I was like, I, ha- I myself had mixed feelings on crowdfunding because I was like, is this lame, you know, or is right. this cool? And um, when we did it, I was like, I don't want any like kind of bullshit, you know, pay this amount of money to meet the band. I don't want any like the rock star kind of yeah, bullshit. Yeah. But but we basically did it like it was a pre order for the record. You just had to wait longer for the record, you know. Right. So, you know, you you donate twenty dollars, and then we mail you a record. But we need to record it first. <laughs> right. Yeah. So. And I mean, like I've I've bought into those too, and I think they're, um, I kind of like it being that way. I get the idea and the appeal to some people of like those different tiers in crowdfunding, yeah. right? Where they're like, oh, I can get these bonuses, and but I, yeah, I've always just kind of been like, hey, look, if you're gonna do a record, and you're also gonna do, you know, like. If you want to do different tiers of, hey, if you pay this, you get, you know, the high quality digital download for 10 bucks mm-hmm. or whatever. If you give us 15 or 20, you get a CD, you know, and like kind of up in those regards, like, oh, if you want to get the vinyl, it's going to cost you 35 or whatever. Right. Like, yeah, kind of I kind of I kind of dig that. And um, but yeah, and some people probably also for sure get on board. Where I, like I've seen some crazy ones where it's like if you, you know, pay X amount of dollars, we'll come to your home and we'll play an acoustic show in your house. And I'm like, what? yeah, to- <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like, I, I appreciate, yeah, I think you're right on with that. I appreciate the tiers of just like, Oh, if you want a, a you know, more like a, of a, lim- a, a limited thing yeah. or a bundle, I think that's cool. The stuff I didn't like with some of the crowdfunding was when the band would treat the fan, like they were like, the true gift you know like they right, were like yeah. yeah i will like look at you for fifty dollars <laughs> you know or something it, 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 you would see some crazy stuff like that and yeah. it's you know i think making limited stuff or you know it, it kind of exclusive things that's cool yeah, that's fun yeah. it's part of collecting music and and stuff puppy in general guys for 60 seconds if you <laughs> yeah exa- yeah there are it's the same reason that like no i mean no band that I was ever in ever did like a meet and greet. It was like, right. hey, you want to meet us? We're at the merch, merch table. table. But we'd, yeah. we'd be with bands that were like, yeah, for 40 bucks, you can shake my hand and I can forget your name in five seconds. You yeah. know, it's like, yeah. I'd rather somebody just come to the merch table and hang out and tell yeah. me what they're into and well, suggest bands to me and stuff. I, I guess that also depends on, yeah, like, because I've, I've definitely never, I've been to shows where you could get the meet and greets. And I'm like, ah, I'll pass, you know? And, and yeah. part of it, I guess, is because, A, it's obviously there's something kind of fun when you just meet someone in a band, whether it's, you know, out front of the venue or at the merch table or, you know, just the random places where it's kind of this chance encounter. Like my, my, um, one of my favorite stories was, uh, so, you know, Chris Caraba, dashboard confessional. Yeah. Um, did you ever listen to his band twin forks? No, I never did. Okay. So it, it was like, when was when was that? So was that, that was that was after like when Dashboard was on kind of hiatus for a while. He kind of did this like indie folk Twin Forks where you know it was a lot of stomping and <laughs> you know yeah, like that yeah. that whole thing. And um, anyway, he uh, 
they came up to Edmonton twice where we saw them. And one of the shows, uh, he, uh, the band Northcote. So Matt from Means. Yeah, uh, I love Matt. He's yeah, great. So his his act that he's got, his band that he's got right now, Northcote, they opened. And so we went and uh, we got there a little bit early because the venue it was at, there's like, um, it's kind of like there's there's a bit of like an upper part where when you come in, that's where you are. And then you take a couple steps down to the main floor. But we like to stand right at the edge on this upper part. So you can kind of see over everybody. There's like a rail to lean on. It's great. So we got there a little bit early and I was like, oh, I'm going to go take a look at the merch table, which was right there. I was like, I'm going to pick up some vinyl. So I go over and I look and I'm looking. I was like, oh, there's a Northcote vinyl and a Twin Forks vinyl. It's like, and I, I look up because there's someone working the table. I'm like, I was going to ask him, like, hey, are you doing merch for both bands? Like, both artists, can I can I grab one from each? And I look up, and it's Chris, like like Dashboard Confessional. Yeah. Like, oh, hey, like, this is, <laughs> hello, it's you sort of thing. And just, you know, hung out and chatted for a few minutes versus, like, I'm sure he's done. Maybe maybe he hasn't. I don't know. But, like, the meet and greet thing, I'm like, that's. Yeah, and, and I, I get it, too. I get doing the meet and greet thing, you know, at a certain point. When, when, I mean, once you have an MTV Unplugged record, you know, I think it's, <laughs> you could probably do one. But, um yeah. I think you meeting him like that, there's something yeah. so genuine about it. And I and I think that's one of the coolest things about the punk and hardcore scene yeah. is that it doesn't feel like anybody that you're listening to at any point is uh, like some different tier than you are. You can, yeah. you know, it's like you could go and start a punk band and, and tour with that band that you listened to growing up. You know, I've yeah. had that experience a few times myself and you know the whole time i'd just be there like oh this is amazing you know yeah. and that is very in line with that like seeing the seeing chris just doing merch yeah. that's really cool i love that there's something about that that just feels real yeah and uh that's great so let's move on then i guess to that was kind of a side sidetrack but um speaking of tracking let's move on to tracking tracking so tracking a record there's a lot of different ways to go about this and um, the process is actually probably pretty surprising to people in terms of what order you can do things. Um, I think a lot of people that don't play music, that don't do recording, kind of just assume the band gets in a room and mm -hmm. plays at the same time, and that's what the yeah. record is. Yeah. Because that, that is what it was for years. I mean, for at the, you know, the whole first 80 years of recording, pretty much that was it. But um, there are still records that are done that way. I will still do records, you know, kind of live records from time to time mm -hmm. if a band's really trying to go for something uh, specific. But for the most part, you know, uh, you would start with drums, maybe. That is a traditional way to start. But even that has changed in these last few years. There's a lot of bands that will program drums um, and then do all the guitars, bass, vocals, and then record drums last because that way they can change the songs around if they want. You right. know, if they're like, oh, we should add a part here. Well, once you've already recorded your drums, it's, it's really kind of hard stuck. to, yeah. kind of hard to do that. So even that's changed. But traditionally, yeah, you'll go in and the way it's kind of done now is that, you know, everybody plays at a time and you really go through it all. And, and my normal procedure is going drums first and then guitars, and yeah. then bass, and then vocals. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of records where I do drums last now, too, because yeah. technology that, is changing. Does that does that end up adding a ton of work to program drums first, or is that a pretty simple process? Like, well, I guess it, you just it, do it something can, pretty basic. Yeah, it can do a while. I think it's important when you're doing program drums first that you don't actually keep it too simple. You try to mm -hmm. get it as close to what they are going to do because yeah. it will affect... Um, the performances, if you're sure, trying to get yeah. your final guitars, the drums doing like a different part than it would be doing. Um, but 
a lot of bands will actually do the program drums on the way in. Now, with gotcha. the, the way technology is during their demo process, they'll right. have the MIDI kind of laid out for the drums already. Or um, if they just bring drums, you know, some, sometimes I'll set up the mics on a band, like going back to that with on a record that we're doing pre-production now for, mm -hmm. I have them in the room because that worked for them. So they'll set up in the room together, play together, and then I'll make the MIDI of what they just played. Like I'll just kind of program it out and just tap. Yeah. Um, so if you have experience with it, it does take a, you know, it's not too long, but it takes a little bit of work. But the amount of time that you save from doing that to make sure that you know what you're doing going in on the drums, like it more than balances out. Right. In the and um, another thing with, like, tracking, too, is uh, people probably don't realize how many layers go in on records, too. Now, with digital stuff, as opposed to doing tape, you know, 20 years ago or whatever, when you hear a record, everybody's kind of envisioning, oh, it's two guitarists, it's mm. the bass, it's the drums. But, you know, it's you can do a left and right two guitar you know, mix or setup for tracking, but often it's quad tracks, which is four guitar tracks or right. even six at certain points. And then all these overdubs and stuff like that, you know, it depends what you're going for, but, um, there is a lot of layering that goes in when people hear like a record sound huge. It's probably cause the guitarists are playing it multiple times. And right. somebody has to like kind of edit those together and put that on top. Yeah. And it also, I think the order for tracking also, um, one thing that depends too is like what style of record you're making. So, you know, if you're doing like a jazz record or something like that, you would not do it single musician at a time. That doesn't make sense because right. there's something about the kinetic energy of the musicians feeding off of each other that you have to do in a room together. Yeah. And if you're doing like an acoustic folk record, which I end up doing a lot here actually, there's, you know, common singer songwriter stuff, you'll probably record the acoustic guitar first, maybe right. even the acoustic guitar and the vocal first, and then the percussion and everything's added afterwards. Yeah, that's uh. So, um, do do you get a much in the way of jazz coming through, or is that just kind of like no way? No, it it doesn't really. There's there's probably I would love to do it, and yeah. I record bands that will have little bits of like jazz influence, right? But yeah. unfortunately, I don't see too much. Like we're really, um, kind of specialized here in terms of like we pretty much work with guitar based music, so. Yeah acoustic folk stuff uh hardcore punk indie rock uh metal you know yeah. tend to stay around in that world because as a studio we've been fortunate where we've never really advertised the studio much over the years it's just been word of mouth which mm -hmm. means it stays in like the kind of clicks that we know or play right. in bands ourselves because yeah. you know i i play in and 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 you know had played in you know misery singles and shyloot and all these bands mm -hmm. and then chris who does the studio with me he plays in the world is right and so he has that so we both tour and we meet people that's how they come here so it tends yeah. to stay in our world so okay here let's see if you've got an answer to this is there a project that immediately comes to mind and you're like that was a lot of guitars <laughs> like um just yeah. like as far as number of you know tracks recorded for one single song yeah, there are. I mean, there's a few that really come to mind. I mean, one of the first things was I started the studio right off in 2004 to record a record of mine. Right. I was like, I, there's no way I can afford doing this record that I want anywhere else. I want to yeah. go crazy with it. So I yeah. kind of started the studio to do that. And um, I ended up never releasing it because by the time I finished it, I was like, wow, I just wasn't good at recording. And <laughs> now I know what to do. So I 
kind of, one day I might go back and try to put that out, but yeah. that record was crazy. And then um, that influenced the Shy Lude record that I did because that Shy Lude record, we started in like 2006. So it was mm-hmm. right after I kind of started the studio and I was still on the like one million guitars, you know. And yeah. I honestly, I still love that because I, you know, co-producing the new The World Is record. Yeah. We layered a lot of guitars on that. That was a band right. that had three guitarists in the band, and they two of the guitarists left. And so it was down to just Chris on guitar. Yeah. And he was like, okay, it's down to one guitar. How can we make this the most guitar-heavy record we've ever done? <laughs> you know, try to flip the script to what people would expect. So we really went nuts on that. And I, and I think, you know, for those records where you're really going in on it, like The World Is or Shy Lude or even like the Misery Singles record, you can end up with like 50, 60 guitar tracks going. They're not all playing at the same time, but they're all different tones that interweave in and out. And there's a lot of things people might not even realize where it's like, oh, this is this heavy part. And then you have layers of guitars detuned, you know, put underneath Mm. to make it extra beefy or, you know, certain like rock choruses, you can layer acoustic guitars underneath them and you don't hear them as being an acoustic guitar, but you feel this richness to the tone. Right. So, yeah. And and that said, I I still like to do records sometimes that are just left, right guitar. Let's go. It's live. There's a charm to that too. Yeah. I was going to ask, is there like... um kind of a, a little tip that or like a trick I should say that you've picked up over the years that you're like oh if I you know that you maybe gets used often on your records that you're like this worked that one time and I've just always been able to rely on whether it's you know you mentioned the acoustic guitar under a big like rock chorus to add that richness or you know something in in that sort of uh light yeah I think there's a, I think there's a couple of things I think um when people have you know, if you're doing heavy music and you're trying to have breakdowns come in, there's a lot of pitch shifting pedals that can mm. shift a guitar down an octave or something like that, or blend in an octave lower. Yeah. I think having extra tracks come in with an octave lower or an octave higher subtly in there really makes a huge difference. And a mm. lot of producers will do that, but as a listener, you don't perceive it so much as you're just like, you just wow, this <laughs> is this is huge. Yeah, yeah why is this yeah. so huge? You know, um, I would say that's a pretty big one. And yeah, I, I guess my main go-to is that, you know, I t- typically, again, it's, every record's different, but I typically do quad tracking, which is two guitars on the left, two guitars on the right. And those will be different amps. Um, they'll be like the primary guitars will be one amp, one guitar usually, and then the secondary guitar will be a different guitar, different amp. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the real trick, if you want something big, chorus or you know, your breakdown or something like that, have extra guitars come. And it sounds crazy, but I really like extra performances coming in. So it'll go from four guitars to five or six when the big part hits. And again, the audience doesn't just hear it like, oh, what's, you know, was there a guitarist just sitting in the room waiting to come in for the chorus? (laughs) You know, they just feel, they just feel, yeah, exactly. They just feel the impact of it. So that's probably my main go-to is just like, don't be afraid to layer when you want something larger than life. You have to yeah. make something larger than life. Yeah. So like we talked a lot about guitars, obviously that's not the only instrument uh, you're recording when putting a band together or like putting an album together. Um, how, like, I guess when it comes down to vocals, how often are you, like how often do you talked about quad guitars? How often are vocalists like double tracking vocals and doing like that sort of, stuff or is, is a lot of that accomplished just through filters and effects these days or um yeah I yeah guess. i think i think a lot of uh 
a lot of people still do doubling and stuff like that. You there are like plugins, which you know, if anybody's listening, plugins just like a program that runs within your software mm-hmm. that you're recording. So uh, there are a lot of plugins that will try to artificially double stuff, but it doesn't really. It's more for like an effect, like you hear that yeah. something sounds weird or alien or something like that. But yeah, I still do a lot of vocal doubling. Um, it it depends kind of on what the singer needs uh, for screaming singers. I think it really makes a lot of sense to have stuff doubled or for the most recent misery singles record, the one that came out last year um, when I went up, you know, into that area and recorded uh, Jesse for it. Um, we quad tracked his vocals. So every oh, time yeah. you hear a vocal on that record, there's four vocals four and they're left Jeez. and right. And they, they're edited together to sound like one voice, but yeah, it was what he did on the first Misery Singles record with the producer Devin Townsend when they did that album. And because it was his record coming back uh, as a producer for that record, I was like, you know what? I want to give people a nostalgic feel. I want to record it similarly to the way that it was recorded on the first Mm. album that you did, which was a technique I don't often do, which was having that many vocals layered. And it takes a while. You need, you need, you know, you need a budget to kind of do that stuff. And yeah, really go in but it does give it like a different feel sometimes you can lose a little bit of the intimacy you know Mm -hmm. single vocal can still be like the thing especially when it comes to acoustic music or something like that because you want to have this like personal kind of connection to the music and like the kind of intimacy with the artist where you feel like you're just seeing him in a room kind of do it um where doubling would ruin the illusion of that that you're trying to create um but more often than not, things are doubled, especially if you're dealing with rock stuff, at least choruses, if you're trying to do big things like that or have other people layer it in. That's another thing, too, um, is when you're doing, like, heavy records, you know, sometimes I'll go in when I'm mixing and I'll layer underneath the singer, and I don't have a great voice, but it's at least something a little different. I'll put it really right. quiet so you don't really yeah, hear yeah. it, but just to add that <laughs> little extra bit. So there's all sorts of instances where producers are, like, you know, layering little harmonies or little vocals that you don't even realize they're just kind of being put into just, you know, this part needs something. Yeah. There was, there was actually one time on a record that I did back in 2010 for this band hostage Com, where, mm-hmm. um, their self-titled record where there was their first single that they put out actually for that song called affidavit. Uh, there is a line in there that when I was mixing the record, I just didn't have any good takes of it. I was like, oh, dang, like I just didn't get enough material um, to do this. So I had to sing a line and mimic the singer's voice (laughs) and uh, put it in there just because it was a really hard line. Like it had a lot of note movements in it that were kind of tricky. And um, not that I'm like a great singer, but I just had the time because it's yeah. I'm at the studio. I had the time to try to let's do you know twenty takes of this and try to get it. Yeah. And I had to mimic his voice and put it in, and they couldn't tell. And I I told them after the record came out, I was like, yeah, this one line, <laughs> I had to do this. That's amazing. And it's kind of, it's a really yeah it's a really funny. It's a really uh, funny thing. Going back to like doubling or I guess even in Jesse's case like quad recording his vocals. Um, are you changing, like, is there typically a, a change in mic setup or EQ or anything like that? Or is it literally just letting the voice do its thing while, you know, mixing and working in with the other takes of the voice? It's it's mostly letting the voice do its thing. It's right. mostly the same mic and the same setup. And you might process it a little different in the mix. Like, there might be, 
you know, not the same compression or EQ setting on it when right. you're mixing it. Um, you know, sometimes with the screaming stuff, if you're layering, you can like distort the one underneath it a little more and put it in. Um, right. but you keep the, the main one less distorted so you can still understand what is being yelled, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, there is a little processing processing that will go into it. And, and one thing I should say with tracking in, in general on the general arc of tracking is, uh, you know, there is like sometimes a misconception with people that don't do music that you just kind of go in, you play your part, and that's it. Uh, often you're getting many takes of things. You're getting many, many takes. You know, if you're doing guitar parts, you might do it like three, four, five, ten, twenty times. Mm-hmm. You know, there's parts of the like the end record where I'm playing because for for end the other guitarist Will, he's a producer as well, and he's a he's a really great producer, and so he'll record me playing guitar for that. And he'll just have me do, you know, he's like, I know you know the score. You're going to do 30 <laughs> takes of this. <laughs> and I'll just sit there and do a bunch of takes. And a lot of that gets put in um, kind of like the the next, if, if you want to move on to the next stage, or it's it's mm-hmm. kind of part of it too, but the next bit of recording, which is the editing, yeah. mix, prep, post-production. Yeah. Uh, a lot of that is going through all the takes that you have. Sometimes you can do it while the band is there. But usually, time is money, and as a producer or engineer, you know, at least for me and all the, you know, most people that I really look up to, you're on the, the band's side. So you're trying to get the best record that you can out of the time that you have. So if you can do certain editing things while you're mixing or something like that, I always opt to do that because it saves them money, mm-hmm. and it allows us to focus more on the creative decisions and like the creative ideas of layering rather than the technical, like I'm going to line up your double. You know, sometimes I have to do that while I'm going. Sometimes it's complicated enough where I have to do it as we're tracking. Yeah. But if the budget's very limited, I'll do a bulk of that later. Mm-hmm. And that's sometimes, you know, for the most part, you, you hope like, okay, I believe I got it here. Sometimes you end up singing a line on a record <laughs> and, you know, mimicking the singer and yeah. you, you didn't get the take that's that you amazing. wanted. That's so incredible. Um, <laughs> so, like, how often does uh, do you say we'll fix it in post? How often does that come up, or is it just like no? Fix. We're gonna you're gonna play like you said twenty takes, or you're gonna do twenty takes of this, and then I'll put it together. <laughs> it really, it really often comes down to budget. If you have a bigger budget, you'll actually do the editing right there, uh, often with the person there, because if you need something a little different, you can have them rehit it sure, right there. Yeah. yeah. Um, but to fix it, you know, every talks about like the fix it in post thing. You got to make sure your source is good. Mm-hmm. But fixing it in post, I mean, in this digital age, it just is what it is. You know, it's like yeah. such a massive part of every single artistic medium, pretty much. Like yeah. photography, filmmaking, writing, even with just like being able to go back and edit little things on your computer as opposed to having a typewritten page or handwritten page, you know, mm-hmm. to work with. Um, so fixing it and doing that kind of cleanup stuff is really important. And there's a fine line to walk between over-editing, which happens a lot, and it's hard, it's really hard to resist the temptation to do that because you're like, you know, it's a discipline. You know, when I, when I first started recording, my first records that I did, I did no editing because I didn't know how to do it. And then once I figured it out, I went crazy. I did mm-hmm. too much editing. Like when I listened back to that Shia Lude record that I did, the guitars are, they sound kind of fake sometimes because I mm. really went crazy with the editing. I was just figuring it out. It was only a couple years into my career. 
And I really tried to go down and, and I didn't have the discipline to look at something and be like, if I can fix this, you know, it's like one of those things. It's like, if I can fix this, should I fix this? Right. You know, and like sometimes you can fix it, but you shouldn't. You should yeah. leave these little noises and these little hand gestures or these overtones. And that's what makes it feel human. And it took me years, like 10 years of recording to understand, like, really, that's like, oh, I shouldn't edit this. This is just a good performance. I should just leave this. And it's making me feel things. And if I move it to a click grid, I'm going to lose that feel. Yeah. So that brings up a how often does uh, quantizing happen in music today? Quantizing happens a lot. Yeah. I okay. So from from my own experience, I actually don't do it. I manually do all of my edits, mm-hmm. and because I'm old school fuddy duddy, you know, that's yeah. just manually doing it. But I like leaving feel in on a lot of stuff, so I don't. I never hit the quantize button, but yeah. I realized that like that's only because I'm, you know, uh, just I work a lot. Like I, 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 you know, to do your own business and to do recording, everybody I know that like does it full time, you're working 80, 90 hours a week, 100 hours a week sometimes. And that's just what it is. It's like, you know, you have your work day with your client and then you either mix at night or you mix in the morning or something like that. That's just kind of what it is. Yeah. And um, so I do a lot of that stuff manually, but a lot quantizing and, and moving things to the grid is extremely common, especially in drums. It's most, most common in drums. Mm-hmm. And when you're quantizing it, you can kind of set a parameter as to like, is it a hundred percent to the grid? Is right. it 80% to the grid? Same with auto tune. Um, I do use auto tune on a lot of melodic things, but when I use it, I manually go in and do it. I will see the pitch laid out against like a, piano basically mm-hmm. is what it looks like and i'll draw in the corrections that i want but i don't just throw it on as a plugin to just automatically do it because i think right. it takes away too much i just fix what i want to fix by leave the character that i want right and it takes a little while to do that but most records that people hear do have auto-tuning on them and they do have editing and they do have that kind of grid stuff and you know there's a great charm to records that don't have that you know, when you hear it and you can tell and you hear the mistakes. And sometimes that's awesome and you really like that. But there's also a thing where people are so desensitized to edits in general that you, when you hear something that's like a great performance that's even slightly off, people will be like, oh, did he mess up there? And it's right. like, he's an amazing, he's in the top echelon of performers, but yes, <laughs> he's, he's not perfectly on the <laughs> yeah. head there. Yeah. <laughs> and w- one thing I should say that's really interesting that I've noticed in the last few years is like auto tuning's become so prevalent now that when I get younger singers, so younger in terms of like maybe in their mid twenties or younger, they might come in and when they sing, they sing artifacts of auto tune hmm. that they are so used to hearing that they make their voice like subconsciously just do it where they jump up to <laughs> a note. You know, I remember one um I actually did a thing recently uh, with a band that was a live in-studio performance. And when they got the first round of mixes, the band was like, oh, I think I sound too auto-tuned in this certain thing. And I was like, actually, you're not even really auto-tuned there. <laughs> and I was like, you're just, because it was kind of more of a pop-punk thing. And their yeah. point of reference, everything that they listen to is auto-tuned. Yeah. And they're like, oh, yeah, I guess I just sang it that way. And they'll do these little things where you like jump to notes really fast and... Yeah. That's maybe don't have crazy. vibrato on stuff. Yeah, it's like singing has changed. Like if you listen to records from, you know, back in the 70s, 60s, you know, 
or earlier, singers will have a lot of vibrato on their voice, yeah. which is where the voice kind of wavers in the pitch. Yeah. And that's because they don't have to hit the note perfectly. If it kind of wavers, it covers what you need mm. it to cover of the yeah. note, and you can understand the melody. Um, but with auto-tuning, you'll hear a lot of singers these days that don't do it at all. And some of it's stylistic change over the years. Yeah. But some of it's also because they're just like, oh, well, when it gets auto-tuned, you lose a little of the waiver, so that's, I'm just going to sing it like that. It's kind of wild because as, as you were talking about things like quantizing and auto-tune, I was like, has that changed the way that we listen to music? And, and, and in one way you said, you know, oh, a top echelon musician is still human. So if it's not quantized and that little error is in there or whatever, it's like people maybe pick up and be like, that guy screw up. Whereas it's like, well, he's just, he's just human. But it's interesting to think that you're talking about, and obviously auto tune would just be affecting singers, but that not just, you know, cause you think one side of it is like, Oh, well people who need auto tune are people who just can't sing. They're always flat or whatever. Right. Like, yeah. But to hear about someone or people in general actually changing the way they sing not because they're bad singers but just because what they hear all the time is auto-tuned and going like that's the way the human voice sounds so that's what i gotta do with my voice yeah is wild to me like i like that's something i never would have thought of because it's always the other way right i'm always thinking like oh um auto-tune will fix that yeah i was flat or as pitchy as whatever but whatever auto-tune will take care of it whereas you're telling legit stories about people going like Oh, my voice sounds auto-tuned. Well, that's because that's what you think singing sounds like. Yeah, so you like, think singing sounds like. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's such a it's such an interesting thing. And and one thing that's funny too is there's times where you don't want to quantize and stuff. And like mm-hmm. the drummer that we have for end, he's he's so good. He's got such a cool feel. Like I was talking about him earlier. Um quantizing him hundred percent does take away from some of the aggression and the wildness of mm-hmm. his like you know, his fills and stuff like that. But I will say um, the the best musicians and the best singers, uh, overall, they're actually the people that don't mind that you right. if you do quantize it a little, you fix it because they put in the work and they they want to hear it the way that they're aiming for sometimes and yeah you know they'll be like yeah go for it like that's cool and you'll see people that'll be like I don't want any auto tune the people that like kind of say that often are maybe the weaker singers and right. it's more of like a reflection of their own like lack of self-confidence yeah that they're like i don't need this thing it's a crutch to help me you know yeah. whereas the most the most confident singers like yeah you can nudge that that's fine they you Which, know they don't yeah. have like a you know it's an interesting thing not that it's the same but that just kind of sharing that it reminded me of uh like tom york of radiohead for the longest time and maybe still like i remember hearing a story that he really didn't like the way his own voice sounded. And so it, it obviously affected the way he sang, but his voice, his vocals were often kind of layered in effects too, because he wanted to sort of hide that a little bit. I don't know if that's, if that's true or not. I definitely remember reading it and going like, okay, like he, he seems like the kind of guy that might be that way. Right. (laughs) I I think that's a hundred percent true. I'm I'm mixing a record right now um, for a friend of mine who's super talented musician he doesn't like his own voice. Mm-hmm. I think he's a great singer, but he doesn't like his own voice. So my first round of mixes that I provided him with, I didn't have a lot of effects on him. I was just like, this just sounds really good. He's like, I want more reverb. I want more effects. Yeah. And I kept, and he kept going mix revisions with me, you know, going back and adding more and more and more. And ev- you know, eventually it was just like, yeah, I don't like my voice, so I'm just trying to hide it a little. And, and I get that. It's actually, that's the thing that people don't think about often when you're thinking about 
recording, especially vocals. Like if, if, if anybody's like old enough to have the experience of hearing your own voice on like a, a telephone messaging thing, yeah. whenever you'd hear your voice, you'd be like, oh, that's what I sound like? That's yeah. terrible. <laughs> like so many people have that reaction yeah. where they hear their own speaking voice um, and they're just like, that's what I sound like? Damn, that sucks. Like everybody's got like a really weird perception of their own voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and that translates to singing too, where you know some great singers, like I would think Tom York is a great singer. Yeah, I, I love Radiohead, sure. right? Yeah. And um but he he kinda knows his limitations or he doesn't like the way it sounds, so he, he'll do that and that's fine. I mean that's that actually that same thing translates to guitar playing very mm. often. Um you'll see people that are doing guitar leads and stuff like that that really want a ton of effects. Yeah. Um that it can be a really cool thing, but I bet you, you know, there's a there's a certain chunk of the guitarists that just want the effects because they're trying to make up for what they right. view are shortcomings, yeah. you know, in their own guitar playing. Like, I, I probably am guilty of that myself. Like, I don't really, as a guitarist, I'm not somebody that ever learned how to uh, shred or yeah, solo. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when I have to do guitar leads, I'm immediately, like, in space. I want the weird, I want the delay pedal, and right. I want the, like, effects pedals. And that, you know, even just talking to you right now, thinking about it, like, hmm. I do the same thing. So yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to shred, but I'll give you something weird with the delay pedal. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just going back real quick to, again, quantizing, I guess. You just kind of mentioned, well, the, your drummer in, I think you said in end right now, right? Yeah. He's, he's got great feel and all this stuff. And there's, there is something, Aaron and I discussed this briefly. There was an episode we did and I'm trying to remember um, if it was a, an episode we did on pure noise or what, but anyways, we were going through record labels and uh, we were like sharing our favorite releases from different labels and he had shared one or maybe it was, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but there was a specific band and I was like, ah, I just, when I listen to like a hardcore band, I really want that, you know, I'm more drawn to like the chaos, right? Like, yeah. And versus, you know, like the, the really kind of more technical breakdowns or riffs or whatever. There's a lot of like start and stop to it. Um, at the same point, I enjoy things like math rock. So it's kind of funny, like that's got a lot of start and stop and, and technicalities to it. But how, like, is it, is it, is something like quantizing and editing the drums and all the instruments like onto the grid? Is that something that can even be accomplished in more chaotic hardcore bands? Or is that just kind of out the window and they're just, yeah, I I think you, I think you still do it in a lot of that stuff. Um, and I do it for some of the crazier records, uh, but you got to be really careful with it. Like, mm. I think the big thing is, like, you might be able to do some drum beats and then other, f- like, fills you might want to leave alone. Like, when we're doing end stuff, because, again, Billy's so chaotic, and especially him coming from Dillinger Escape Plan, which is, like, yeah. ultimate technical chaos, right? Yeah. Um, with that stuff, they'll edit certain bits mm-hmm. where they really want something to, to sound mechanical on purpose. And right. you'll hear that in a lot of guitar stuff and in a lot of math rock where they like might specifically want something to sound like computeristic. Yeah. And again, yeah. that might be back to what I'm saying with like, you know, the singer comes in singing the auto tune. Yeah. Maybe the guitar player comes in trying to recreate the glitch, the digital glitch or the thing like right. that. And you're, and you're trying to get that. So editing it is appropriate well, to it, but you yeah. can still do chaotic stuff. Like I, I think, you know, if you listen to like a, a converge record or something like that, right. There's little editing in there, but you have yeah. to be disciplined with it. You don't want to go 100% to the grid 100% of the time. Yeah. Whereas 
if you listen to like a gent record, you know, if you're listening to like, um, you know, uh, like a after the burial or something like, you know, some band like that, yeah. you're good. You actually want it a hundred percent quantized because that is what they're going for is this mechanical, yeah. super synchronized sound. When you talked about like recreating the glitch, I think is how you worded it as, uh, so like, I'm sure you're familiar with Polyphia. Yeah. 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 And so like, from what I understand, like when Tim Henson, that's his name. Yeah. Cause Jim Henson is the Muppets guy, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, but like when he writes his guitar parts, I, from, I think I heard somewhere or whatever that he writes them first, like purely in like MIDI on the computer. And he's like, I want to write this. So it's this crazy guitar riff. And then I got to teach myself how to play it. And yep. so he, you get a lot of kind of crazy, weird stuff, I think, when, they, when they're when they putting stuff together. But, but like, that's a kind of music, too, where I'm like, yeah, I can understand where they're like, we want it to sound as mechanical or robotic or whatever, because it just sounds so, like, clean and precise, right? And he, yeah. Like, they're, they're playing some crazy technicals. My favorite thing is to go on to, like, YouTube videos of theirs and just read all the comments where people are like, they couldn't play that live. They don't, They definitely don't play that live. And then there's live videos of them playing it playing like, it oh, yeah. yeah i mean I yeah think exactly the guy's legit talented like <laughs> yeah there, there's like i said the, the again to touch back on it, the most important thing is that every process is different you know like mm-hmm. th- there are records i still do that have no click track yeah that are just fully feel it out and then there's nothing to quantize there's no click yeah. to quantize it too you just gotta get the take get the mm-hmm. thing and it works for certain stuff you know i think a lot of like what you're kind of saying with like a lot of hardcore records if i'm doing something that's like feels like 90s or like early 2000s hardcore i might opt to not do that record to a click because i just want that feeling of what they're going for depends what the influences are Mm -hmm. if your influence is a computer (laughs) by all means use the computer i mean that is you know there's something valid to that yeah um so does that does that kind of cover us off on post and editing or is there something else you wanted to touch on i I think the only other thing that i want to say on with the post and the editing is that in post-production too, you will get as part of the process. That's where a lot of layering can occur in post-production and the actual tracking can occur at the same time. But this is a, a thing that I just want to mention in the general process of making a record. There are records like that world is record where we added orchestral strings mm-hmm. to the album after like, like where right. they basically put together the album. They weren't written with strings in mind but they just generally were like, we want strings on it. So once all the music was done and edited and everything, uh, as part of the mixing process or whatever, they basically, it ended up where I got tasked with writing string arrangements for mm. it. So I just kind of went through the record, picked out a bunch of parts, wrote it out on, you know, I can't play violin yeah. or cello, so I started write it out on piano, and uh, we hired a string ensemble to do mm. it, and that was added layer. Later, so a lot of that kind of stuff, post production can be pretty, you know, pretty wide range. Like you could spend like a week recording a record, yeah. and then a month doing post production, adding keyboards and strings and all this kind of stuff. And and I think, you know, and some people will be like, "Oh, that's kind of bullshit. That's not what the band is, or that's not representative of what the band is." I take recording as its own thing and and again you can try to recreate the live sound on a recording and i do do that sometimes Mm -hmm. but you can also just try to make a piece of art that has the editing that has the layering that has the post on it and do a different version of it live 
when right. World Is plays live, they don't have a string ensemble with them. But what they do have, and this is the thing people don't think about often, when you play live, you've got volume that is way beyond what people are usually listening to the record at. And you've got this energy of seeing the people like just play and the feeling of the air moving against you. And so when I often choose to layer records, it's because I'm trying to recreate that larger than life feeling of seeing a band on stage that you can't get when you're listening on your iPhone speakers right, or something like that. So <laughs> yeah. I try to do a little extra layering to just give it like, oh, that sounds crazy even on my little, you know, my ear pods or whatever, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, you know, that's why I like to do that. I like to do that layering to create it as its own thing. And it's okay to have live performances be different than the record. You have mm-hmm. the record, you can sit and listen to the record, and then you can go see them live. And it's its own experience. Right. So that layering, I, I think, kind of leads us maybe into mixing a little bit, like where those layers are going to sit yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And, there, and, and sometimes a part of mixing is the layering. Like I said, these kind of a lot of these stages aren't like, okay, we have fully finished this stage, right. so yeah. now we can move on to the next. Yeah. They're, they're very interwoven to an extent. So we will get records like, um, you know, like we just got a a thing, uh, a, a small like bonus track thing from the band Basement, and we're going through it, and it was just like a stripped down like acoustic thing, and there was a point where you know Chris was like, I just want to add like a tone, just like a kind of light keyboard tone underneath this acoustic part here, just to create just a little bit of ambiance to it, mm-hmm. and that's like what you would call post production, but we didn't record this record at all. This is just in the mixing process, so. Right you can add certain things like that during the mixing process. And what the mixing process is, is where you take all these tracks, hopefully they're all edited and cleaned up, but unfortunately, often the case, they might not be, or they might need like a little more of that. Um, And you take all the tracks and you, you basically might have, you know, some records are like 200 tracks. Like when I did that, the, the world is string stuff. Um, we took the string ensemble. I recorded it so many times when we had the ensemble because I, I had four players, but mm. I wanted it to sound like a symphony at certain points. Right. So yeah. I would have, you know, 35 performances of them layered on top of each other with 10 mics each. So I got to 350 tracks <laughs> for my string mixing session. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and it's, uh, it takes a while to go through that. So, Really what mixing is, is you go through each each track. So you got your guitars, your bass, drums, vocals, everything. And you're really putting in all the effects, all the EQ work, all of the compression work and stuff like that. And you're doing any final edits and things like that too. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing I do want to mention, actually, just now that I remember it, when talking about the editing in general and how it ties into mixing and everything like that and the difference between live performance in a studio or in an album is I view sometimes the live performance like you're going to see a play. Right. And when you listen to the album, you're watching a movie. Sure. And the movie's going to have editing because that's part of the thing. So sometimes I'll be like, oh, why you edit anything? Well, I'm trying to make a different form of art. Sure, I'm not trying to capture just the live performance. Um, You know, so I just wanted to mention that. Like, it's a good way for people that might not understand the the, music. But if you want to see a performance go see a play, go to Broadway. Mm-hmm. But if you want to see a different 
type of art. Go see a movie. There's editing, there's filtering, there's post-production. All of this, everything it takes to make a record also goes into making a movie or something right. like that or a TV show, something like that. But um, the mixing process can be quick and, and pretty raw or it can take a long time. You know, sometimes mixing records for me takes as long as recording or, or longer, mm. substantially longer. When you're doing the editing cleanup, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, and, and in that mixing process, you're balancing out all the tracks. So, you know, how loud is the guitar lead going to be? How loud is the vocal? How loud yeah. is the vocal harmony? You're setting all the levels and how they work together. Um, and one of the biggest things that I think to describe to people is mixing isn't just setting the volumes because a lot of mixing is you know a lot of how you hear something comes down to the eq and compression too so mm. um you know i always think of things on a spectrum if people understand eq if you're like looking at a you know parametric eq that lays it out from low end and a couple notches all the way up to high end and everything yeah. everything sits in a different spot so your bass drum and your guitar is more low end oriented in your or yeah your bass and your your kick drum and then your guitars are kind of in the mid range and then your vocals are a little upper mid range and then your snare and your high your cymbals are in the high end and stuff like that mm -hmm. and so one of the easiest ways to mix is just to say you're you have a guitar track and uh you know you just put a little filter and you cut out some of that low end that you're not using on that track to make way for the kick drum or the bass, you know? Right. Yeah. So, so sometimes it's not as much as just turning a volume up or down. You're trying to make a space for each instrument to exist. So what you're telling me is next time I turn my guitar amp on, I need to turn my bass and treble all the way down and just crank my mids. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you tone. what, <laughs> I, I'll tell you what I do like so when I record guitars one of the first things I do I'll leave the the you know the high end and the low end at like noon or seven right. o'clock or something like that but yeah. I do crank the mids all yeah. the time and yeah. that's a funny thing because that's something that like back in the 90s there was like scoop the mids take the mids out it sounds yeah. heavier you know and that's why unfortunately a lot of records in the 90s don't sound super clear you can't they tell what's fuzzy. going on yeah yeah and um and turning uh, up the mids, that um, that's actually, you know, that came from a friend of mine who did like a little uh, tour with Propagandi. And they, mm. they were the ones that were like, turn up the mids. And he's like, okay, you're Propagandi. You're an amazing band. Right. I'm going to turn up my mids. And then I recorded him and he's like, they told me to turn up the mids. And I was like, oh, let me try that. Oh, this is yeah. great. <laughs> you know, like, oh, propagandi. Okay, we're good. <laughs> so so it is funny, like what you're saying is like kind of, you don't want, you don't want to turn yeah. your low and high end down, but turning the mids up, yeah. most guitarists don't even think about that. But as soon yeah. as I do it in the studio, they're like, oh, I can hear everything I'm playing super clear. And it's, I didn't turn the guitar up. I turned up where it was sitting in the EQ range. Right, yeah. that's And that's an interesting kind of point to make because, I mean, I think you're right when people think of mixing and for the most part when i think of mixing like i i think mixing and eq but not so much about like oh the guitar sits here so to make as you said room for that we're going to create space by taking kind of some of that out of this where you know like you said like the kick drum doesn't really need it or you know whatever like just yeah. kind of carve out some space for it so uh, and, and you you also do that in what, what is your panning so you, mm -hmm. you generally mix in, in, you know, for a left and right speaker. That's what yeah. most of the stuff that we listen to with headphones, we, you know, 
makes sense that that's common because we have a left and right ear mm-hmm. and that's how we process <laughs> information. So that's, it's mirroring that. Um, and when you're doing that, you actually, you know, you make room for things. So, uh, the reason people put a guitar on the left side and then a guitar on the right side is because in the center, you got your vocal yeah, and you have your snare and you have your bass and stuff like that. So you pull a lot of things to the sides to make room for each other. Mm-hmm. So you do it with your EQ and you also do it with the space of like deciding is this going to be in this speaker or on that speaker or both. And you try to spread it out. If you have everything right in the center in like a mono mix, it's really hard to decipher what's right. going on. Now, when you when you mix drums, uh, do you have a way that you typically pan them? Does it does it is it based on the drummer? Because I had something I feel like it was said to me at some point in time where when you're kind of mixing a drummer, you sort of want, you know, the toms and the cymbals or whatever to kind of line up if you were sitting at the kit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And yep, you're... So then but there's been times where I'm like, okay, so am I supposed to be sitting at the kit? So if, if I was playing drums, I'm, you know, normal handed, so my hi hat's gonna be over on my left and my, you know, and then we're gonna go from uh, my high to low tom from left to right, that kind of stuff. But then when I like listen, you hear like a drummer do a fill. I'm like, hey, that's going the other way. Is that, you know, I, I guess each producer is going to do their own thing as yeah, well. Yeah, there's, there's, um, there's a lot of debate on that. Uh, but I always do drummer perspective, and I'm a steadfast drummer perspective mm-hmm. advocate, right? And um, the reason I, I, people used to do it because they would do it from the what's considered audience perspective. Yeah. And when it goes the other way, you're you're listening to it from audience perspective. Yeah. But to me, the reason I do it drummer perspective is because I think the the casual listener that's not a musician does not care where yeah. the drums are panned. They don't right. care. They're yeah. they're just like, cool, that sounds like drums. Yeah. Um whereas the musician that hears it, he might be air drumming along yeah, or was, thinking uh, about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I want to give the perception of like, oh, they can air drum this because that is such a part of learning music and like right. caring about music is like tapping along. You know, even the, my mom will tap along to a song when it comes on. You kind of yeah. feel the beat and the groove. And I think it's cool when it can line up when you're listening from the perspective of sitting down at the drum kit. But one thing that is interesting about that that I should point out that is funny is the old school way of doing audience perspective works really well in a music video, but sure, yeah. when you're watching a when you're watching a current contemporary music video yeah. and you're watching the drummer go from you know right to left with the toms, but you're hearing it from left to right, it is kind yeah. of a funny thing. But most people don't realize that. But you're yeah. literally watching it go the opposite direction because you know again as producers like me that do drummer perspective, you're taking the gamble of, hey, the audience isn't going to care. Right. You know, well, it's only the diehards that are trying to air drum that are going to care, <laughs> and I want to give this to them. Well, now you got me thinking. I'm like, okay, a music video, if a band is, you know, performing, I'm probably not going to notice it if it's a full band shot anyway. Now, if it cuts and it's just like an isolated shot of the drummer and it is looking at him from audience perspective sure that might jump out but i feel like a lot of times if if a video is doing that and it's cutting to a an isolated shot might of the cut drummer, behind him or yeah above it's kind him. of behind or beside anyway so i'm like okay, yeah but but um, that's a new that's a newer thing though you know right, if you yeah. if you go back to videos from the 80s you won't see the behind the drummer view but now it's right. kind of like we you know it kind of created this thing where and i think like as we we're saying it's very in tune with like the punk or hardcore thing you want to listen to a record and feel like you could also do this. Mm-hmm. There's a participation yeah. element to punk and hardcore where it's like attainable. 
If yeah. you want to start a band, you can get in your mom's basement and start a band or something like that. And that's cool. So by creating that and having those behind the drummer perspective, you give people like, I can feel like I'm sitting there and I'm experiencing this. Yeah. And I like that. And there are still people that do it audience perspective. You know, I, yeah. I worked with a producer that recorded drums for a record and he had everything audience perspective. He's like, you should really leave it this way. And I was mixing it and I was like, yeah. first thing I did was flip it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was like, cool. All right. Well, anyway, I'm just going to do this. So much for that. Um, the only t- the only time I do audience per- okay and this sounds kind of bad but the only time I do audience perspective is with certain left-handed drummers because my mind just can't process it at this point <laughs> so I just like I just used to my floor tom being in my right yeah. speaker and I'll hear him and it sounds I when I hear it they flip the other way I'm just like wow this is crazy I don't know what is going on yeah you know now it, when it, it, when it comes to mixing other musicians in the band though are you taking any of that in or is it just kind of like ah this guitar i'm gonna put over here you know if they say there's two guitar players in the band and because i'm gonna assume most times when that band steps on stage especially at that time they're gonna be in their same place most of the time right like one guy's gonna go stage right the other guy's gonna go stage left now when you mix their guitars are you keeping that in mind or is it just like what you feel like you pick a channel for one guy and pick a channel for the other guy i kind of i kind of will just pick a channel i kind of don't take that but you're you're right, and that is a funny thing to talk about. When bands get on stage, you typically there's like an unspoken. You just kind of yeah. pick the side that you're on, and you're always on the side. And then like, you know, when you're in a switch situation where you have to switch for some reason, it feels like you're playing on Mars. Like it feels like you're just not, you're like, where am I? What is this band? Who is you know? Mm. And so switching the side for and it's for no reason other than you're just used to you know, yeah. you know where where you're at. But I yeah, I will pick it and then. Um, but often at the same time, when you have different guitar parts, so you say somebody's doing a lead or something like that, you don't really want like a guitar lead to be on like just the right side by itself mm-hmm. and just the rhythm guitars on the left. So a lot of parts when they do different parts will be like centered. Yeah. So you'll have a left and right of the rhythm and then the lead will be centered on top or slightly to a side, but you'll still have the rhythms not like drop out. Yeah. yeah. So so you kind of like uh, what I'll have people do is like when they have their demo or something, I'll listen through it with them or when we're doing the pre-production of the first tracking, I'll listen through and be like, okay, we're going to make this center. Um, these leads are going to be on top in stereo or something like that. We'll come with a game plan early on and kind of divide up what the parts are. And right. when that happens, the, they either, when they're doing the rhythm tracks, either the other guitarist plays their side when it goes to something like that, or the other guitarist has to learn the riff. Hmm. So it's typically what happens. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to add about mixing? No, I think that's that's. I mean, I guess the main thing is, you know, like I said, it's you take all these tracks, you do your final editing, which is definitely a big part of it. Um, with mixing, also, there's like drum samples get added in in a lot of contemporary recording, where you know you have your natural drums that you recorded and you edited it up, and then you put a little bit of samples underneath, or in some instances, people put a little too much and it sounds yeah. very fake. Um, I, I typically like to put like a little bit in as like a 30% of the mix or something like that, just to even out some of the hits so you can hear it better. And that mm. is a part, you know, big part of the process, yeah. but you take all those tracks, you do all that stuff. You try to make it larger than life. And when you leave a mix, you have just a left and right. It just gets summed down to left and right wave file mm-hmm. of the mix. And then it goes to master. 
and that yeah. and that's when we get into the next thing. Um, so that's and, and mastering. We we already discussed it earlier. You're just uploading online and is yeah 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 and yeah. It's there's, done, right? a, you push a button and that's it, and you know you're all set. <laughs> Um, so yeah. we get to the, the big mystery of mastering. Like, right. what occurs then? The band has already heard the mix. They've already approved the mix, you know, at the point that you're going to mastering usually. Um, what on earth happens there? And what mastering does is, uh, well, what I like to do is I like to send it to somebody else. There's a mm. lot of mix engineers that do mastering now that used to not be the case, but similar to what we talked about with producers and engineers becoming yeah. one thing because the budgets became way smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mixing and mastering engineers kind of got combined for a little bit too, but I still like to send it out because I like fresh ears on it. But there are people like Will, who plays my band, he masters all his own recordings and he's amazing at it. He does a great job. Um, for me, I like having the different perspective. So I like sending it out to somebody um, either to Will or somebody like a Chris Crummett or Bill Henderson or somebody like that, and then they listen to it and they're like, "Cool, this is what this needs." And they have a fresh perspective. They haven't been recording it for months, you know, or mixing it for months. They're hearing it for the first time. And sometimes your fresh perspective is one of the most important things. And that's true for mixing. That's true for songwriting. That's true for this whole process. If you have the ability to maybe take a day or two away from something, that's not necessarily a bad thing, you know. Because when you listen back to it, you're like, wow, I really screwed that up. That sounds crazy. I need to redo that. Or, you know, you find the problems. But what mastering does is mastering takes that wave file that you have, which is all the tracks put down to basically one track, you know, left and right stereo wave. And what they do then is they will compress it and EQ it and play with the spatial stuff a little and and what that basically means it's like you if you're going to like listen to a record or something and you have a friend come over with this amazing receiver and they're like hey put the record into this receiver and i'm going to dial in the greatest settings of all time on it and you're like cool <laughs> <laughs> and that's like pretty much what it is they go in and they kind of beef up everything the um the biggest thing is is that you know when you have it mastered it it, through the compression it makes it louder so yeah. to describe that to people what you know what is compression that is a question that a lot of musicians don't know and don't totally understand but the way that it works in mastering more or less is I'll try to describe it here is like if you're looking at a wave of a mix like a wave file of mix, you're visually looking at, you can actually like see where uh the, where all the peaks and valleys are so you can actually yeah. look and you can see where a snare drum is hit it's one of the loudest things in your mix. You see the snare drum, you see like a little spike. It's just a little mm-hmm. spike right where it's hit. And, um, you know, or like a big vocal section or something like that. You see all these peaks and valleys. Um, and you can only turn up that wave as much until those peaks hit the ceiling. There's like a digital ceiling. You can only turn it up so much until they hit that ceiling. And after that point, it starts to distort. It's like it only has so much information and then it starts to distort beyond that. Okay. It's similar to like if you're listening to a record and you just turn it up too much, your speakers yeah. can only handle a certain amount and then they start to distort a little. Then they start to blow out and then you can ruin your speakers, you know, yeah. Yeah. from turning it up too loud. And what compression will do, more or less, is it will cut off all the peaks at a certain point. It'll cut them all off 
and then raise the volume of everything up. Now that you don't have those peaks anymore, you know, to a certain point, you cut off as much as you want. Depends how much you want to compress it. Um, but you cut off the different peaks and you boost the whole thing up. So the whole thing is perceived as loud. And that's mm. that's really a big part of it. And people like loud things. You know, it's like you go see a movie that's really loud. It hits you hard in a different way than if something's really quiet and you're trying to listen for it, you know? Mm-hmm. Especially for pop stuff or hip-hop stuff, you know, like, and metal. You want it to be very loud. So you try to push that as much as you can. But as you can see what occurs when by you know okay what information is lost when you cut off all those peaks yeah well you you start to everything starts to just kind of crush into itself a little you know what i mean so if you have a snare drum popping way out and then you cut that off you're still going to hear it but it's going to be a little more smashed into everything else yeah does that make sense oh yeah they're like over compression is one thing that has driven me bonkers in because there there are just some some albums i don't want to name them because i don't want to call out different you know people but there have been a few albums over the recent years that people are like freaking out they really like this record and i'm just like i can't listen to it because it's just so compressed right like yeah yeah um, yeah and and it starts to totally it starts to distort at a certain mm -hmm. point like you you it starts to naturally distort because you're removing so much of this dynamic yeah and don't get me wrong Sometimes, again, with everything, there's a time and place for everything. There are some records being over compressed mm-hmm. is cool. It like it, right. where it is just like so aggressive, and you're just yeah. like it hurts your ears. But maybe the band wants to do that. You know, yeah. if yeah. you're listening to like a, you know, sometimes with end, we'll we'll push it where it just sounds like noise, and it's like right. yeah, it's just pissed. There's That's just what it is. An oh. example. Um, it's funny. So I don't know if you're a fan of the story so far at all. But uh, yeah, they're cool. They're cool, Ben. Our yeah. bassist loves them. Yeah, so like their album "Proper Dose," I absolutely love. And I remember when it came out, people were complaining about the production on it, and I was like, "What?" Like this was there. There's in like that, that 2010s pop punk world. I think there was a lot of compression going on yeah. with a lot of bands where it was just like, "Okay, it's a bit much." And the story so far was one where I was like. Okay, their songs are great, but I just couldn't really get into the overall sound of the records. But when Proper Dose came out, I was like, "Oh, this record feels so different. Like I can I feel like I can breathe listening to it." Now, obviously they also made it, you know, an alteration a bit in their sound. They they evolved that sound a little bit more and they weren't just writing straight up like Warp Tour anthems, right? But mm-hmm. um but the when people were talking about the production, I was like, I honestly love it, and because it was, I felt like it. They kind of dialed that back a little bit, and they weren't as worried about, you know, making sure all the guitars were right in your face along yeah. with the vocals, sort of thing. And I mean, sometimes, like you said, though, like not everyone wants to have to sit there and like listen for things, right? So uh, I can kind of get that where they, you know, bring it all right into your face too. You don't, have, you don't even have to do anything. You just ob- absorb the song through your body. Yeah. Yeah, but that is like and and you like you were saying you saw a divide, right? Mm-hmm. Where certain people weren't into it. Yeah. Because it is like there's a certain point where you get used to hearing things that are so loud that when you hear something quieter, you're just like, "Oh, does this sound bad?" Right. Doesn't mean it necessarily sounds bad. It means that we've like kind of trained our ear for something else. Yeah. And that's like a really 
you know, it's a big thing in recording. They call it the loudness war. Mm-hmm. People are trying to make things louder and louder and more compressed and more compressed because they want their song to come on the radio or come on the Spotify playlist yeah. and just knock everything else out of the water. Yeah. And they, they want that kind of thing. So, you know, uh, people are compressing it more and more. And then there's the, the flip side where certain people are like, well, you're losing everything. You're losing the dynamic of what the band is trying to do. And you're taking all the frequencies, you know, because it's not just like the peaks and valleys of like, say, the snare drum. It's also the dynamic range of the EQ and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So when you're compressing it, you're, you know, the full low end, the full high end, you have to kind of cut that down too and focus it a little more in the middle slightly. And then you artificially like, boost the signal you know after the compression stuff you'll boost mm-hmm. back the low end to get the really thumping bass or something like that um but yeah you lose a lot of information so people are also just like damn like this just sounds you know they call it brick walling when you over compress it's called brick walling mm-hmm. because the waveform that had all these peaks and valleys all of a sudden just looks like a flat yep. brick <laughs> you <Yep>. know <laughs> yep. and there's no dynamic and then like you know when you're super compressed your clean guitar verse ends up sounding as loud as your right. six guitar chorus and then yeah. like what happened in the song like nothing really occurred you don't you know yeah. it's like you know similar i try to explain it similarly to like you know if you watch like an action movie or something like that and like every single scene was an action scene by the end of it you would just not care anymore you'd just right. be like okay there's no there's nothing exciting anymore because you know and it's the same for i think every form of art be it storytelling there's peaks and valleys in the story you know where um, you, you want some more of the, you know, whatever it's the peaks and valleys that capture our attention often when things mm. change, when things feel different. And when you, you know, same with music, you know, it's such an important part of music, but when you over compress it, you can lose it unless, like I said, unless stylistically you are going for the over compressed thing, you're going for the right. club banger and yeah, you want yeah. <laughs> your low end to just totally hit and you're singing songs about just shit that doesn't matter yeah, you're whatever. like who fucking yeah. cares i just want the bass you know to hit and for people to go fuck yeah and dance to it yeah. you know so it all depends on what the purpose is but if your purpose is to hear a band perform and you want to feel like you're watching them then you want a little more of that dynamic in them yeah. you want a little more of that human feel yeah um so, so it is. It, I was just saying, it is just uploading it and putting a filter. It is just uploading it. Yeah, yeah. And 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 the reason, yeah, and the reason that you, you know, you don't. I mean, you can, but uploading it to do a, a mastering thing like that is kind of like, I'm a photographer and I'm gonna just use Instagram filters. Yeah, and that's 100%. my. It's like the Instagram filter of the audio world. And I'm not saying you can't make amazing photos with Instagram filters, but. Right it's not going to be as unique because every user of Instagram has those same filters. So, you know, you can make something good, but the value goes down as it becomes less unique to an extent as well. So at this point in the process, is this when, uh, I mean, obviously at some point, maybe some are, and some artists are going to be more, I guess, I don't know if in tune with this is the right phrase, but more aware of this sequencing of an album and making it sound consistent from start to finish you know so you know sometimes you put a record on you're like okay these two songs sound like they're recorded in one place and these three songs sound like they're recorded elsewhere and it just sounds different from one song to the next yeah is this the point in the process where you know to get that cohesive sound across the record that's all i guess coming together like 
do you at any point in time just take if it's a 10 track record let's say do you take them all at the same time and make sure and like you're comparing them from one song to the next that, that yeah. flow is there yeah so so sequencing the record that can often occur during the mix i will mm-hmm. do that during the mix always but not every mix engineer does that that's like right. depends how hands on you are i will sequence it because i love records when like songs kind of bleed into each other yeah. you know and when when song when the last song's ringing out, the guitar's ringing out, and then the riff for the next song starts. I like yeah. that yeah. feel, capturing that feel sometimes. Um, but, uh, yeah, the final, it either has to occur during the mixing or during the mastering, usually. I mean, I suppose you can get all the songs mastered and then put it together yourself, but that's not really right. the way that it's done. Um, and, yes, it, like you're saying, one of the most important parts about mastering, and you're, you're absolutely right, is making the record work together. And there are bands, like we had mentioned Radiohead earlier, when they mm-hmm. did OK Computer, like every song's recorded at a different studio, it feels right. like, you know? And so, but you still want one listening experience, yeah. you know? You, you, you want maybe the unique characteristics of all those studios and all those different things, mm-hmm. um, but you want to still sit there and listen to it and not have something, you know, there's something to be said about, we talked about the value of dynamic. Yeah. But you can also be so dynamic that's just jarring and yeah. unpleasant to listen to. Yeah. And that's when, like, songs just sound completely, you know, in the middle of the record, here's this song with a completely different guitar tone that's trying to sound like the same guitar tone. You know, like, your distorted guitar is just totally different for some reason. Yeah. It yeah. can throw off the cohesive experience of, you know, you feel like you're listening to a playlist more yeah. than you're listening to a album or an artistic yeah. you know piece of work. Um so yeah, mastering does occur, you know, it is a really important part of that. So if you're mastering a compilation record or you're adding bonus tracks or you know, you just you did just record the songs at different studios on purpose, um mastering will be a very key ingredient to balancing that cuz they the mastering engineer is going to want the low end, you know, when they're EQing and compressing um they're going to want the low end to hit similarly across right. the record. Yes. Uh, and you're going to want things to sound. So one recording might be quieter than another recording. They're going to try to have them hit in the end at the same level. So you can just sit there and listen to the full release together mm-hmm. and not just have to turn, you know, you don't want to sit there with your hand on the volume knob, turning up the volume. Well, it goes to track three is really right. quiet. I'm going to turn yeah. this up and then track four is loud as fuck. I better catch it before it hits in, you know? Right. Well, it's like when you're watching a TV show or something and it goes to commercials and the commercials are 10 times louder than the TV show. It sucks like, so much. Like, yeah, it sucks so much. It, yeah. it makes you, it makes you not want to even like, I'm never going to buy Dove soap again, you know, or something. Yeah, yeah. because it's like, can really piss you off, you know, when you're trying to get into something. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, mastering is a really important part of that where it does balance the things and it balances more than just the volume, but it balances the, the EQ and the, and the space too. People don't realize you can affect the spatial distance of things. Um, mm. And that's not just the left and right speaker, but you can make something feel like it's far away or it's very close yeah. to you uh, about, with certain like stereo field widening. And yeah. that goes down a whole other rabbit hole, but the mastering engineer will do that. I mean, we do a little of that in mixing, but the mastering engineer will play with what's called the stereo field. Yeah. And that's a whole bunch of, that's like EQing the different speakers differently for yeah. certain things and stuff huh. like that. Have you, have you, um, I don't know if you use Apple music at all, but they recently just, release their what do they call it they have some like special mixes of albums that they released and they're supposed to be this whole like spatial 
kind of like listening experience where it's 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 funny because if you compare one to the, like you know um i think the weekend was one of the artists that they first released like one of his albums that was like supposed to have this whole new experience i'm like i honestly i can put headphones on and i'm like i'm not noticing you know the difference and i had a chuckle because they had said if you're listening on a bluetooth device it's not actually um how did they word it? It was like, you couldn't get this feature basically. Yeah. Uh, but as we all know, with iPhones, they removed the headphone jack, right? So I'm yeah. Like, yeah. So Apple's wait. just giving you like, <laughs> yeah. what do you even do? You listen on your, you know? Yeah. I don't really know particularly what it is. I mean, I know that they did the, uh, mastered for iTunes. If you remember, that was a thing a couple yeah. years ago where they were like yeah. specifically changing the mastering. Um, there were back in the early two thousands, people were doing something called, SA CDs. Do you remember those at all? It's like super audio CDs. Mm. Those were where they would take classic records and they would remix them in 5.1 or 7.1 okay. surround sound. Yeah, so it, sounds, could like, it sounds vaguely familiar. I, I remember when there was like the whole DVD audio thing. Yeah, exactly. It's similar to that where people right. like people basically tried to, you know, give, you know, 5.1 or 7.1, but it didn't st- it was like 3D in movies where people were like, this is great. And then two years later, like, ah, I'm over it. I just want the so again. sorry. So the the Apple Music thing that they introduced is called Dolby Atmos. And oh, Dolby Atmos, yeah, yeah, or Atmos, and yeah, like I, I don't know, I couldn't. So so the point <laughs> of that, so Dolby Atmos is mostly associated with film, and that would be mm. a similar to what I was just talking about. You would actually want to listen on your home theater system, right? Yeah, so yeah. your surround sound home theater, it's going to be optimized for that. So the EQ that's going into your subwoofer is going to be different than the speakers that are behind your head. They're going to, they're going right. to break out the EQ and compression per what the speaker is. And that's kind of like what the Atmos so, stuff is. Yeah. So my favorite thing about that whole bit is that Apple went through with this when we could probably make an assumption that the large, the vast majority of listeners to Apple music are listening on headphones or their phone speakers. Yeah. It's just a total. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. Like, all right. You know, um, I suppose I could listen through my Apple TV hooked up to my home stereo. I guess I could do that, but not everyone's even got that going on. Right. So yeah, exactly. It's a very niche thing. It's a very sure. niche thing. <laughs> and you know, there's certain, you know, people try to take certain gambles where they're like, you know, are we going to be on two speakers forever? And they, you know, you try to mm-hmm. jump the gun and see like, it might be this format. It might be that yeah. format. Yeah. And that actually brings me to something I want to talk about with mastering yeah. that also leads into our next thing, yeah. which is the um, production and the medium through which uh, stuff is released. Mm-hmm. One thing about mastering, uh, especially with top tier mastering engineers, that's very interesting is that you do alter your master for the medium that it's going to be released. The biggest one is digital versus vinyl. Vinyl has a completely separate master um, than digital. But even further than that, like when Will's doing mastering, he has different programs that he opens up that will play the song back as if it's coming from Spotify, as if Mm. it's coming from YouTube, as if it's coming from Apple Music. Every one of those platforms has a different algorithm to how they take the wave file, shrink it down to like an MP3 more or less so that you can stream it. And each one of those platforms distorts certain frequencies different or removes certain frequencies. And so when, yeah. So (laughs) when you're listening to something on Spotify versus Apple Music versus YouTube versus CD, um, they're completely, they're, they're, they don't, 
they don't have to be different. You can just load right. it in, and whatever happens, happens. And it's yeah. going to, oh, this album sounds amazing on Spotify, but it sounds like crap on Apple Music. Right. Yeah. But the really advanced mastering engineers will actually do slightly different versions. Or mm. even if they don't do different versions per se, they will listen to it on those and make notes. Like, right. okay, if I boost the bass here to sound better on Spotify, does it ruin my Apple Music? No, right. it doesn't. Okay, I'm just going to boost the bass across the board. Yeah. So there's actually completely different formats. And the 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 algorithms for the digital stuff, it's subtle. You know, you'll have people like really argue like, I swear by Spotify or I swear by Apple Music. Right. Um, and it really depends on what your listening device is. So yeah. if you're listening in your car and your car speakers are a certain way, they might be more favorable to one format or the other. I mean, I do think from what I gather, the Apple uh, algorithm is the most advanced one. And mm -hmm. like YouTube's quick and dirty and Spotify's kind of quick and, you know, you just throw it in there right. and just kind of compress it down. Apple's a little more uh, artist and mix friendly, slightly. But uh, at the same time, I find myself using YouTube frequently or something like that. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, so then let's, let's talk about, I guess, that's... that's that's something that never would have occurred to me. Like, it's one thing, obviously, for you to bring up the difference between, uh, like, a CD and streaming. But in my mind, I'm like, oh, the streaming is all the same, regardless of the platform you're using. But that's interesting that there's actually slight minor variations. Um, but let's get into, I guess, we've now recorded, we've mixed, we've mastered. Well, I guess we started with writing. But anyway, we've gone through the process. Yep. Now we want to get it into people's hands or into their ears. Um, and I mean, that the, the main, like I said, this came up because of a discussion about, uh, vinyl specifically. So I think like, I don't know, we can go yeah, in which this, way you want with this, but, but take yeah, us this down goes, this rabbit hole. This goes, this goes right down to our original, um, discussion, which was like, is there merit to vinyl sonically as opposed mm -hmm. to digital? Um, and the, the thing I had mentioned in my comment that I'll try to, uh, basically describe here is um, technically vinyl and digital are somewhat similar, but vinyl has a sweet spot where you can only put a certain amount of information on it because, mm -hmm. you know, the way that it's done, it's like grooves that your, you know, yeah. stylist goes through and it replicates the sound wave pretty much. Um, and if you have those grooves too close together, you can, you know, you can put, one thing people don't realize, you can put as pretty much as much uh, music as you want on a record. You could do 100 minutes on a side of a record. It's going to sound yeah. terrible right. and super <laughs> distorted because it has to make the grooves so small to fit them on the 12 yeah. inches you know, that you have. Um, but there's a sweet spot. If you want full fidelity of an LP record, I think it's around five minutes of music. Right. which is not cost-effective for anybody. So nobody does that. So the average range for a 12-inch uh, record is, you know, could be five minutes or it could be about up to, I think it's like 24 minutes before it starts, before a noticeable depreciation right. yeah. of um, what you get. And so that's why you get, you know, double LPs and stuff like yeah. that. And, uh, you know, that that affects you know having less so you can spread out the the stuff whatever but when you're at like full function vinyl and full function digital they're pretty similar in terms of what they what the response is but once we go to those like 20 minutes or 24 minutes or whatever we have to change it and what vinyl takes 
is, you know, I was talking about the mastering levels and the compression that goes on when you're doing these digital masters. Mm-hmm. The headroom for a digital thing, CD, streaming, is very high, and the, the dynamic range of the EQ is very high, and it's much higher than vinyl in the end. Vinyl is actually a limited format. It can only handle between a certain frequency range that's smaller. It can only handle a certain volume that's substantially less than digital. Um, and the limitations of vinyl, it's funny, it's, and it's hard to describe, but the limitations of vinyl are actually what makes it or what make people often prefer the medium because when you're doing that mastering, you can't over-compress it. You, right. you just can't do it. It doesn't work. The grooves get too smashed in the style like your actual needle just bounces off like it you you get it so it's just bouncing off the thing like it doesn't pick up all of the information you're trying to put on it yeah so when you're doing a vinyl master specifically you actually can't compress it as much and so it ends up being closer to the mix which at the end of the day usually is closer to the intention of what the producer and the band are at that is what they're Hmm. used to tracking at the studio when they're recording and when they're mixing and when they're in the studio that's the closest representation to what they're doing it's not super compressed it's not super sandwiched and so it's a weird thing where the limitation becomes its strength because people can't overblow it they have to leave it closer to the source by Hmm. nature you end up with something that's closer to the source and and it's funny and it's like is like is digital superior listening medium Yes, but human nature is flawed <laughs> to an extent. So if we, we, you know, we can overblow something, so we just do it, we don't have the discipline to not engage in this loudness war because we want right. that radio play, we want that whatever, but we're forced to have discipline on vinyl. When you're mastering for vinyl, you're forced to exercise discipline in how much compression you apply so you end up with a more dynamic recording and where you get vinyl records that sound bad because that is one thing you mentioned in your and i think your comment is that you've been disappointed with a lot of pressings that came out that sound bad and often that is a product of uh mastering engineers taking the digital master and just sending it to the pressing plant and then the pressing plant either way it has to be turned down but at the pressing plant they can turn it down They can take your thing that's too loud and they will turn it down to what will translate, but you've already compressed it. So you actually end up in the worst position where you have an over-compressed mix that's quiet. Mm. That's the worst of the worst. So you don't even have the advantage of it being loud. It's quiet and it's dynamicless and it's on vinyl. So you get this pressing and you're like, wow, that actually sounds worse than if I just listened to it on Spotify or something. Right, yeah. And that that comes from a lack of experience or from mastering engineers not appreciating the form of vinyl. And and also maybe mastering engineers taking a gamble and saying what you you expressed, I think, has a lot of merit. The way you discussed vinyl and how people mostly want a physical connection with the art. And I think that's true. I think the vast majority of people that do collect vinyl um, have it because they want to have it. it's like the shoe mm-hmm. collector somebody that collects shoes they're not going to wear all the shoe all the nikes that they have that cost hundreds of dollars they're going to sit in a box on their collection but it gives them some kind of comfort or peace of mind yeah. to have this thing they just like collecting it so vinyl people like the artwork or they like it and often they'll you know here's this 
I love having this record on vinyl, um, but I'm just going to listen to it on my way to work uh, yeah. on Spotify. You know? On my phone, yeah. You know, and, and, I, and, I, and I get that. And I think there's a lot of truth in what you said to that. But yeah. there are certain people that are like, oh, it feels different listening to a record. And I think the points that you brought up in terms of just, A, connecting with the artwork better, and, and B, also not being able to jump around, you're getting to listen to the record mm-hmm. from front to back without just jumping to your favorite song gives you a more uh, complete artistic experience. It's like the difference between watching a scene out of a movie or watching the movie. Yeah. You know, um, and it gives you just a different thing. But the reason that I brought that up, though, is if you can't quite put your finger on why you like vinyl, it's probably in part due to the, the way that vinyl is processed with these a little less compressed things. I love the way, and it actually reflects on certain genres better than others. Um, where it sounds really good is for things like classical music or jazz right. that yeah. are very that are very dynamic by nature. By nature, classical music you can go from one solo violinist playing, then all of a sudden a sixty-piece orchestra comes in behind them, and you're going from zero to sixty real fast. Or one, yeah. you know, <laughs> and. Di- and uh, vinyl will preserve that because you just are not compressing it as much. You know, not that the loudness war affects classical the same way that it does like modern hip hop or rock. Yeah, totally. But jazz and classical sound particularly great. Um, so you know, and you can have something that's recorded completely digital. You know, never touches anything analog, which is which is a little bit of a misconception too. Because even though you know I record on a computer, and yes, it is digital, you are running through preamps and microphones and when you're running through preamps they have you know tubes in them different circuitry you're running through all the stuff that is analog gear you're going through analog gear to get to the digital world so it always starts analog well for the most part you could just be making electronic music (laughs) i was gonna say actually actually that's not even necessarily true either because most when you're doing digital music um somebody's just doing like electronic like trip hop or something like that like those are usually samples of something that was analog that was recorded at some point and put into the MIDI. So it usually starts analog no matter what. So however you capture it, be it on tape, be it digitally, you're starting with an analog source more often than you're not. So um, by putting it back onto that vinyl, really if you can preserve the full dynamic range of the volume and everything and you put it on that vinyl, you get this organic experience. And it is hard for people to quantify, but it feels, it does feel different, even though it's like, yeah, this kind of sounds the same, but I'm having a different experience. And I don't think it's just watching a disc spin. Right. You know, it is, it is, it is like an organic thing. So when we're talking the greater connection to the artwork, you're also having greater connection often to the artist's intent. And I think that's such an important thing with art is the artist's intent. I think that's like, I mean, when it comes to listening to records for sure is that you put it on and here, I guess the the one downside for me that'll happen a lot of times is I'll put a record on. And if I get doing something else, like it's not a very good medium to be doing things around the house, right? Like yeah. put your, I want music on cause I'm cleaning the kitchen or whatever. Vinyl's not yeah. very great in the sense that I don't know how many times I've every put 20 a record minutes. On. You, yeah. yeah. And then, and then it stops and I'm just like, well, I don't want to flip it over. I'll just like start it again, you know, like that side or whatever. Right. Like just like cue it back up and, and what have you. But in the, in its whole, like vinyl is a, is a, is a, is a form that I will listen to like where, yeah, I'm going to typically sit down and I'm going to listen 
to an album versus just putting it on for for whatever reason. So getting that artist's intent uh, and interesting, like to hear you bring up like the mastering levels, how much quieter it is, and it's a lot closer to actually just the original, you know, mix when you guys were done in the studio. Yeah, like, oh, when, okay, when done right, <laughs> when, yes, when done right, right, and 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 that's amazing. And so I think though. I've just had some some pressings and I mean I think a lot of it just comes back to the fact that there's been, you know, the boom in in vinyl sales, right? Like all of a sudden labels are like, "Oh, we're going to repress or press for a first time these records that, you know, never had a vinyl pressing." And they're just like pushing so much stuff through that some of it just comes through and I'm like, like I had a Motion City soundtrack record that I couldn't listen to it. It was unlistenable and it would start out because I, I brought up the point that like as you get closer to the center, yeah, the, the quality the... of the audio degrades, right? Yeah. And so as you know, like it started out, it wasn't very good. And by the time it got to the last track or two, because they just crammed as much as they could on that side of the record, I was just like, you can't. I can't listen to this. So Yeah, it just um, sounds bad. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, that, and that's that's kind of, you know, that's true of like so many things. I see it even like I'm a big film lover and mm. – um you can buy certain like 4k discs that don't look great because right. just the transfer of it, you know, like you have all that you can do something really cool with it, but it, there is, there's always going to be a human element no matter what. So uh, a vinyl record will not always sound good because people mm-hmm. are making it and people can make mistakes or poor decisions. Hundred yeah. percent. And the same thing is with like pretty much every, you know, even, di- you know, digital stuff, obviously there's always a human element and somebody can just do a bad job or, um, you know, I think a lot of labels, you're totally right. Vinyl's just picking up. Sales mm-hmm. are up and up and up, especially during the pandemic when bands couldn't tour. Right. And if that was their main source of income, it's like, well, maybe we should re-release our first album, a new pressing of our first album or something. They're trying to do anything to keep in people's minds or to have something to work on during this. Um, so you're seeing these vinyl repressings, but I think, you know, we're talking about the full the, the process of recording. Mm-hmm. And one thing that's really funny is that if you've listened to this whole podcast now, you might understand recording better than a lot of people that work at record labels. <laughs> there is like a general, right. th- there's just a general mystery to it that yeah. like they kind of know some of the basics and they know they got to get it mastered, but they, they might not know. I mean, there's a lot of people that work at record labels that fully know that are involved in every part. Like, um, with Brett for Epitaph, like he listens to when we're doing like a World Is record, he'll listen to it and be like, "Okay, I really like this is coming out great." He'll like even right. like sometimes you know weigh in on like a mix or something like that. Um, but you know, uh, there is a lot of mystery even on the record label end, and, and like so we just you know again bringing up that band with Honor, um, the, you know we're working on this record for Pure Noise. One of the first things as soon as they signed to Pure Noise, they re-released their first album that they did with uh kurt blue kurt from converge um he you know recorded and produced that first record and when they were gearing up to re-release it kurt was like man that was 2003 i could do a better job mixing this he actually like remixed the album entirely went back to the original tracks remixed it because he knew it was getting a re-release uh the band like reached out to him was like hey would you be interested in you know can you send us the files or whatever again and he's like let me remix it you know just pay me whatever you want and you know, it was just like super cool about it. He just wanted to, as a professional, want to do a better job with it, right? So he spent all this time remixing the record, right? So he remixed it, then it got remastered. 
And then the label put it out, and they're just like, hey, uh, remastered with honor, heart means everything, out now. And I remember like looking at the uh, you know the ads that they came out for that when they're re-putting it out. I was like, that's cool, but if anybody was really like, I feel like they could have just put in the ads remixed by Kurt Ballou of Converge yeah. from the original 2003 tapes, and like that's cool. Like, and that's a lot more involved than just remastering it necessarily because you're going back to the multi-track and redoing it. But the label like just didn't even mention it. They're just like remastered, and I was like, ah, oh, there's mm-hmm. probably people that would have been interested in that and would have been like, right. oh, what does a Kurt mix sound like now for a Kurt produced record from 20 years ago? You know, and just like and maybe I'm just too much of an idealist nerd, and <laughs> I would like to see that, you know. But um, right, yeah, yeah. But I think the labels they don't understand it. They're just like, yeah, it's all the same thing, mixing, mastering. Who knows? <laughs> we just need the files, <laughs> you know, and. Um, so where you see that play into exactly what you're talking about is where the label's like, yeah, we should put this on vinyl. Yeah, we don't have like a vinyl master for it, but we got the old masters and uh, we'll just send that to the pressing plant and have them, you know, fit as much as you can. We, we don't want to do uh, double LP, so right. just cram it yeah. on there and let it go, let it rip. And it sounds really bad. So you do need people that care about the medium. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some of the bad sounding records, they still have their charm. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll buy some records. I know it's like, yeah, this doesn't sound as good on this, but... Yeah, it's cool. And I I think one of the reasons vinyl sales have, um, you know, they've increased for, you know, that's a whole other topic. But the reason they've increased so much, too, is, like, with people streaming, you know, everybody kind of knows, like, okay, yeah, Spotify is evil. It's a great tool, but they're not paying the artists anything. And, you know, like, that's a common knowledge at this point. So it gives people a way to connect and, like, support a band directly. You know, if you're going to stream this band's catalog forever... You know, and but with hardcore punk, there's a certain thing where like, okay, I know these people are not making money doing this, and it takes a lot of their time and a lot of their resources to do it. So I want to help support it. Mm-hmm. And one of the best ways to do that is to buy a T-shirt or a record. And that's one of the things I think we're seeing in our community with vinyl sales going up is because you know you just want to, hey, I'm going to stream this album a million times, but I want to own the record because I yeah. want at least twenty five dollars to go towards the people involved with putting it out. Yeah, I so. think for sure, like, um, for me anyway, like, streaming has taken over my, you know, kind of like everyday listening habits, right? Like, that's yep. typically nine times out of ten, if I'm listening to something, it's going to be streamed on my phone or on a computer because you're always on the go or, you know, Bluetooth speakers all over the house. It's it's super convenient. Yep. It's easy, whatever, right? But so so in that in that case... I'm not typically going to buy a CD from a band because I'm like, well, I'm getting all those things I'm going to get from a CD from streaming. So if I'm going to buy a physical copy of this, I want, you know, like the experience like we've talked about. So like the world is, is a great example of a band. I was actually just thinking about this earlier today as I was listening to their, their newest record. It's like, ah, I got to get something of theirs on vinyl. I don't have any of their records on vinyl. I'm like, they're just one of those, they're that type of band, especially where I'm like, you can tell that there's, thought and care put into what that album experience is going to be. And you can get that experience from sure, like putting your headphones on and, you know, kind of picking up all the little things and listening on your phone. But there's also going to be an entirely different experience by having that on vinyl and listening to it on your record player, whether it's headphones on or just turned up through your speakers. Right. Like, yeah. um, And so 
when it comes to yeah like supporting bands for sure like i'm 100 percent in that boat where it's like oh if there's a band that releases a record that i really love and yeah maybe i've maybe i've streamed it a ton i mean obviously they're only getting fractions of a penny for that yeah. um you know each time through but yeah i'll go if if i can get the the one tricky thing is especially for me like during the pandemic is that without tours and without being able to buy a record from a band, if it's not at my local shop uh, or, you know, if it's like the thing is like pre-orders and stuff like that, shipping records up here is so expensive. Like oh, it'll yeah. turn, it'll turn like a $25 record. Say it's 25 bucks American to get this record. Next thing I know, I'm spending close to 70 bucks Canadian because it's going to cost me 25 bucks to ship it. And that's all in American. Then I got to convert it to Canadian. I'm like, uh, yeah, 60 bucks for a record is a bit is a bit steep, you know, sometimes. I yeah, to- totally. It, it makes it a lot harder. And that's why a lot of people like for us with end, um, mm-hmm. you know, we had our last record came out June 2020. Yeah. And because of the shipping and everything like we had, we basically put together like a multi record label release for right. it to, to basically have, you know, people printing the vinyl and have it in Canada. Not yeah. ship it from the U.S. to Canada. We want it sold yeah. in Canada, you know, through like Pure Noise or so, you know. Yeah. And then we had Evil Greed in Europe have their own stock and their own variants of vinyl, so they didn't have to like ship it from the U.S. You tried to like yeah. get it in as many markets as we could, just right off the rip with that. And yeah. it does, it does make it, it does make it hard the shipping fees, and then also like I'm sure you've experienced this too when you order a record and it just is gets messed up in the shipping process. Yeah. I was, I had one in this room somewhere. I may have gotten rid of it, but uh, I had ordered a record and it came and it was, it had a warp. And so I was able, thankfully like the, the label just sent me a new one. And so I, I just had this extra record kicking around for a while, but I think it, I think it finally got pitched. Kind of fun to, 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 to frame up sometimes. It's yeah. Like well, a, that's what I thought. Cause it was like a, art. it was a neat like splatter. I'm yeah, but it's, I think I got rid of it when I, last clean this room out maybe or it fell somewhere i don't know but yeah um but yeah i mean that's obviously a bit of a risk when you're sending something in the mail it might not arrive in in great condition might not arrive yeah and i and i miss selling stuff at the shows but you know even just going back to what you were just saying talking about the world is and that record and Mm. the thoughtfulness putting into like the vinyl specifically yeah the working title for that last song on the record which is like a 20 minute long song yeah the working title for that song was d side because i was gonna say because it's but yeah yeah exactly it was d side and and like everything was like written specifically to be a Mm. specific vinyl listening experience you know and you can listen to it digitally you can enjoy it whatever but the way that record in particular works is the first lp of the double lp set is like you know it's like nine songs uh, split up and then the second LP is one song on side C one song on side D and we just created that on purpose we just wanted mm-hmm. to embrace it and if you just wanted to throw it on and have a different experience than you're used to we want you know there was a extent of catering to that specifically so you know like getting that record and listening to it is goes to the artist intent goes back to yeah. the artist intent specifically yeah that's amazing like and that's I think going back to the original comment like um, summing up and saying like I think listening for the experience is still the main, I think the the core of why someone listens to vinyl. That experience for them could be 
that high fidelity sound, right? Like if they've, if they've paid for the system and it's the high quality, you know, pressing and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, like obviously that's going to add to it. But I think because that's not necessarily the case every time that you're getting that experience, I think there are just so many elements to vinyl because for sure I've got records that I own that I put on and I go, yeah, this sounds leaps and bounds better than this pressing or whatever, or like this record yep, I different have. different pressings. Yeah, you get it even with like 180 gram yeah. versus yeah. the it's, normal 140, 120, you know. Yeah, and so like in that regard, I think for me anyways, for sure it is the experience of going, okay, I have the, the you know, the, the artwork in front of me. Um, and again, I, I even said in there, <laughs> I was clearly speaking to myself, but saying like, uh, you know, you get a little disappointed when you open a record and all that's in there is, you know, the record in a paper sleeve. Like there's not even an insert or anything. Yeah. It's like those pressings, they honestly, they do piss me off a little bit. I'm like, not even a lyric sheet or, you know, it's just like uh, just the generic paper sleeve inside, you know, it's like. Totally. Yeah. And, and um, the, the, the only time that that's cool is if if that's all the band can afford. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> if it's a but, super DIY thing, then I'm like, good on you, you made a record. That's an yeah. expensive, difficult endeavor. But For often, sure. if yeah, if you're getting like, like Victory was doing like the re-releases of like yeah. classic records and you get like the Snapcase record and it's like a just printed on like a office printer sleeve you yeah. know that somebody put in like for the sleeve and you're like okay come on yeah. <laughs> i think i have a further seems forever record that is just it's just a paper blank paper sleeve inside and that's kind of like ah like i love this record i wanted you know a little bit more here and that's you know that's yeah that's it, it, wants, but... it all depends on what level of care the band and in the you know like for the end record that came out the album's called splinters from an ever-changing face and what you see as the digital cover is one of four paintings that we had commissioned for the mm. album cover. And when you get the album, the it there's like a die-cut outer sleeve, and then you can actually change what painting mm. is your cover. There's That's the four; cool. it comes with all four covers, and the back of them have the lyrics. But you know the ever-changing face, you can change it. Yeah. But only only people that have the vinyl record even realize that there's four potential covers for it. Right. And it's just like a little tip of the hat, like, you went the extra mile to get this. We're going to try to go to the extra mile to give you yeah. something cooler still than, you know, just yeah. a regular vinyl. Record. That's awesome. Man, I, unless there's something more you want to add, I think we, we covered a whole lot in this episode. <laughs> yeah, we definitely covered we definitely <laughs> covered a whole lot. And, uh you know, I just want like vinyl's really cool. Digital's also cool. I just want to say, and also, um, if you haven't done a test of listening to a CD versus streaming right. on the same speakers, do that sometime because it is hilarious. Like the CD does sound substantially better. Yeah, and you can get a you you can actually get like a sense of what the algorithms do. If anybody's ever curious, you know, yeah, you could throw. If anybody even has a CD player, I don't even know if I have. I was I was a thinking CD I was like, player at I... this point. Do I have a CD player? I was like, oh, I guess in my car I have a CD Some people player. do in their car. Yeah, if yeah. you ever want to have like a really fun test, yeah. uh, throw in a CD for something you have and then stream it on like Apple Music back to yeah. back and you'll notice a actually very different fidelity mm. and you'll kind of see some of the stuff that we talked about. Um, but, you know, any there's no, again, similar to making a record, there's no right or wrong way. You want to do no click, no edits. You want to do clicks and tons of edits whatever your intent is to get your vision across. And for the consumer, it's the same thing. 
if you want to listen to it on vinyl or you think vinyl is a stupid thing and a waste of space, I, yeah, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> if you want to stream, like, go for it. You know, there's no right or wrong way to do it. So whatever connects with you. And if, you know, you could, we put a lot of weight on like the artist's intent. You could mm-hmm. also not give a shit at all what the artist's intent is. And just like, yeah, this, their intent isn't as cool as the way this sounds on this medium. And that's your right as somebody consuming art. You know, it's a, it's like a art itself is a conversation between the creator and the person taking it in. And it's like, it's not a one way thing. So if you think it sounds better on Apple music or you think it sounds better on Spotify or you think it sounds better on cassette tape, Hey, enjoy it. Appreciate it. You know, a lot of work goes into it. A lot of steps go into it as people just heard. So, you know, getting it and supporting, even just listening at all means the world to everybody making it. The producers, the engineers, the, assistant engineers the you know um people that wrote it the musicians the band you know having some in this day and age where everything we're bombarded and everything is like oversaturated and it makes art and experience feel trivial because it's always at our fingertips Mm -hmm. taking the time to put on a record having a record good enough to warrant somebody flipping it over to that (laughs) (laughs) b-side wanting to hear the rest just getting to that point means the world and then However, somebody wants to do that, that's cool. And I think that's the most important thing in the end. Awesome. Thanks, man, for doing this. This was a lot, this was honestly a lot of fun. Yeah, it was great. Like I said, I've been a fan of the podcast for a while and uh I appreciate you having me on and hopefully, you know, people were able to learn some stuff from this. Um I just appreciate you having me on here, man. It's really cool to be a part of this and to talk about this and to mm-hmm. hopefully raise people's understanding or appreciation for the process and the nuance that goes into recording and creating that.